Drive All Night is supported by listeners like you. To find out how you can help, please visit patreon.com slash songsoftoriamus. There you'll learn what exciting rewards we're offering for your support. Again, that's patreon.com slash songsoftoriamus to help us continue to make high quality and Torytainment for you. I, I don't study the charts. I just, it makes me happy that people just want to take, um, to me, the songs, I call them the girls, <laughs> because... Um, I'm really, I transcribe them. I'm, I like take dictation. And when they come and visit, I meet them and sometimes I have a good margarita with them and a, <laughs> a bit of a dirty joke with one of them and a little cry with another one of them. And usually uh, they all have their own kind of life about them. And once you put a record out, sometimes I wave goodbye. It's like they, I see them leaving the studio with their lunch boxes, knowing that my girls have Bollinger in their lunch boxes going off to school. <laughs> and you say, you know, bye. See you one day. Hey, everybody. You're listening to Drive All Night, the songs of Tori Amos. We are your hosts. I'm Ephraim Jr. And I'm David Anderson. And on this episode, we're talking about Josephine, the seventh track from Tori's fifth album, To Venus and Back. David. Well, hello. Well, hello. <laughs> I'm choosing to embody empress and teacher here at the top of the show because I feel like we're going to learn something today. Hopefully not be asked to teach something, though. Yeah, I'm no scholar, especially no French scholar. Mm. How are you? I'm great, but I don't like beginning a show telling people we know nothing about the subject matter of which the song discusses. Just don't say that then. Fine. <laughs> I am an empress. <laughs> I am the empress. Empress Ephraim. That has a nice ring to it. Not tonight, Ephraim. I also like the musician Empress of. Oh, that's right. She's amazing. I've often listened to them in your car with you. And I am still learning French. Mm. I just learned how to say, passe soi, Josephine. <laughs> how have you been? I'm pretty good. How have you been i understand you had a rough night's sleep oh not tonight david fiend i know huh <laughs> i did have a rough night's sleep we were recording this on monday morning at 10 54 a.m last night was rough i don't enjoy sleeping because i've always had sleep issues my whole life and it's not a restful place for me so i try to avoid going there to the bed for that reason i think we need to work on that no there's nothing to be done about it. Well, how do you know that? Because, I mean, the only thing that can be done about it, what I can do is take like a pot gummy before bed and that knocks me the fuck out and that's what I can do. That's how I get some good sleep. Well, have you ever explored a long-term solution? Like sleeping permanently, David? What are you trying to do to me? I just don't like the idea of you resigning yourself to suffering for the rest of your life. That doesn't seem good. Well, last night, a scorpion got on my foot, and not in real life. In sleep paralysis life, there was a scorpion on my toe. Mm -hmm. It's never happened to me before where I felt something physically on my body like that, and I could also see it. I was like, oh my God, there's a giant scorpion. Don't get on my toe. And you know how uh, freaked out I am by animals and critters yes, and things like you that. you don't enjoy a critter at all. I know. So you were dreaming about a scorpion being on your foot. 
I was hallucinating. I was sleep paralysising. Okay. Yeah. What do you think that means? Were you thinking about Sweet the Sting before you fell asleep? Probably. I was probably, yeah. That probably had come on shuffle on my iPhone. That night and every night. Baby, is it sweet? No, it's not. You were like having some Sweet the Sting dreams? Sweet the dreams. Baby, is it sweet, No. But anyway, so I understand when Tori says, not tonight, Josephine. That's me every night. Not tonight. You're saying it to sleep. Yeah. You're not going to get me. I imagine you with like your hair and curlers under a nightcap pulling the covers up to your chin you're like nope not for you what were your initial thoughts on the song when you first heard it on september 21st 1999 Uh, i guess things have never changed because i was gonna say back then in 1999 i was still on the hunt for a tori and her piano ballad and that's still my go-to that's primarily what i want from tori i leave the team band to you so i think this was a moment where i was like ah yes she's still here on track seven underneath all this production all this flash all this glitter here she is and you know it's not (laughs) totally naked there's that kind of military drum we got some drones courtesy of katon but you know it's pretty simple it is very simple i agree did you love it i did it's gentle and pretty yeah i loved it how about you i recall liking it a lot i really felt that it was just a brief moment in time and she captured it so well briefly it is such a short song and it is just like a it's like a taste it's like a sample mm-hmm. and i liked that it's kind of the heart of the album or at the center of the album and it takes us into this whole other like sonic world because i feel like josephine blends into riot poof right and i always loved when that happened but let's revisit Let me take you back to the 90s. Do you recall a time when the song came out and people discovered that if you took one headphone off, you could hear only her and the piano. But if you added the other headphone, you'd hear the drums and the rest. Mm -hmm. I do remember that. Do you remember that? And do you remember how everybody insisted that was like Tori's very specific gift to us? Do you recall that? Well, you think it was an accident? It wasn't an accident, of course. Like It's obviously panned and mixed that way for a reason, but... I can't speak on whether it's Tori's gift to us because people would say in the 90s it's her gift to us because she wanted us to have just a piano only track. Oh, I disagree with that. (laughs) Yeah. I remember people thinking like, oh, people who wanted just Tori and the piano who hadn't had just Tori and the piano for so long, you know, it was like a special gift from Tori, they thought, or they would say. I do not agree with that. It's definitely a production choice and it creates space. I don't believe that Tori has ever designed a song to be listened to through one headphone or provided (laughs) us with that option. She's like, just take one headphone off. If you want me, I'm here. I'm still here. Yeah. She's like, you know what people really want is to be able to listen to my songs, but also have a conversation at the same time. So I'm going to produce everything to play through one headphone so you can not have to have both of them in to have the full experience. Well, when David and I record, when you and I record, David, I have headphones on to listen to you, but I always have one ear out, and that's just how I am. Always? Not just when we do Yanta? No, that's the when I have one ear on you and one ear on Yanta, and I hate that. Yeah, I know. Me too. Both of my ears are taken up. I find it a little offensive that I can never command your full attention. You can't commit to two headphones ever. I only ever get one. I don't know what it is. It's like... I give you everything. If I were on stage performing and I had an inner ear monitor, I would still have one ear out. I'd be like Tori Amos with a half headphone when she does the harpsichord. That's why she needs to hear the environment. She needs to hear the room. You can't be like trapped in a 
sonic void of noise canceling headphones or like cups on your ears i think you can i can't i think you should use this as an opportunity to let your guard down and relax it's not about that i think you're being hyper vigilant and you're like always having one ear pointed out for hecklers or something it's it's not about that it's about being in touch with the room and being able to respond to the room and you know so much of my work is basically built around my own resonance like if i can't hear my own resonance then i can't respond to it on stage Mm -hmm. much like tori yes she resonates with herself first and foremost exactly i need to know how my voice is dancing in the space Mm. and what a dance it is Mm -hmm. it's a tiny dancer should we talk about our guests here she is josephine herself (laughs) i'm assuming why don't we ever have a seance on this show for this tiny little song for this very short song we have very much many guests we have so many people who have called this song their signature song and i want to know why i want to know why this two minute and change song is everyone's bread and butter Mm. So we're going to explore it. Today we have not one, not two, not three, but four super fans. Jeez. It's wild. I said not tonight, Josephine. And keep asking all you want. They think they're going to wear her down. How would you like to hear them, David? Would you like to hear them in alphabetical order, reverse alphabetical order, by age? You tell me. I want to spin a wheel. Why don't we have a big wheel on this show that we can spin for things like this? When we go back to in person, we will. Okay. Every time we do it, we can start by saying, all right, big wheel, turn my fan to say, and then give it a spin. No whammies, no whammies, stop. No whammies, no whammies, stop. Burp, burp. Bankrupt. On today's episode, we have the wonderful Danny Onchando. You heard from him in the Juarez episode. He's from El Paso, Texas, and this is his signature song, so he's going to tell us why. We also have Nathan Wilkinson, who is a bit of a Josephine expert and a Josephine art collector, so he's going to talk to us a little bit about how the song figures into his life. We also have the wonderful Shane DeCristina, who also counts this song as his favorite song of all time. And finally, last but not least, we have my dear friend Robin Hewitt, who I've known for 20-some years. She's an actual live married lady, and she's here to talk about why this song is important to her as well. So this song, everybody loves Josephine. Not tonight, Josephine. Yes, tonight, Josephine. Every night, Josephine. Every night. We should have named this podcast Josephine All Night. No. No. Okay. No. You want to rename it midstream? Yeah. Let's rebrand. Josephine All Night. We're going to become like P. Diddy. We're just going to change our name all the time with no warning. And like, now we're known as this. Get used to it. Well, he, he shortens his name. That's still changing it. So we should be Dan. Like, wouldn't you be put off kilter if I suddenly started referring to myself as Dave? You'd be like, who? Yeah, that'd be weird. Yeah, it would be weird. <laughs> I've been trying for years to refer to myself as Ephraim, but people will not let me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we refuse. <laughs> I don't mind Eve. I definitely don't mind Eve. I feel like it is who I am. Eve became a thing because of I wanted people to be able to pronounce Ephren and I wanted them to get used to the long E. Eve, Ephren. But then people just started calling me Ephrain and it was annoying. Ephren, we speak your names. We couldn't do any of this without our wonderful historian, librarian, archivist, empress herself, Shay Stymac. Mm. Not tonight, Joe Shafine. Mm-hmm. By the Shane. So beautiful. <laughs> so beautiful. <laughs> like a dream, Vienna shamed. Mm-hmm. Impossible. Impossible. Thank you, Shay. Thanks, Shay. Let's begin this episode with this cover. Let's throw it to a cover by Vienna Tang. You'll be able to find this on our show notes page, songsoftoriamist.com. Look it up, get into it, follow them, subscribe to their channel. Done and done. Okay. Not tonight, Josephine. 
from here, you're haunting me By insane, so beautiful Only not to be Um, well, we do have some Venus and Bat questions, and um, this is actually similar to Christine asks, sort of similar to what I said. Uh, do you think there's some kind of common thread or theme running through the songs of to Venus and Bat, as with your previous albums? Um, people have said, is there like a jumping off point? And I really think that you wake up and you just know that. You don't know why you're being dragged to the piano at 5.30 in the morning, but there's a song that's starting to, you feel pregnant with the music. And I don't know, I don't know, maybe after I lost the baby, it was just one of those things where I didn't think too much about, I think I feel really fortunate that I can create something. And, um... The music just sort of comes and hangs out. I make really good margaritas and stuff, so, you know. The girls like to hang out? They hang out, yeah. I don't judge them too much. It's, overall, um, would you, is there any grounds for comparison between this and Quadro Hotel? Is it a, is it a darker record? Is it, is it brighter? i got to tell you, I never compare the records. That's like comparing your children. Mm -hmm. I can't, I couldn't do that. Josephine is the seventh track from Tori's fifth album, To Venus and Back, released on September 20th, 1999 in the United Kingdom and September 21st, 1999 in the United States Kingdom. Why aren't we called the United States Kingdom? We have started to, or at least you have. Why haven't we developed a kingdom on the side? Who would you want to be our monarch? Um, Isabel, obviously. Obviously. <laughs> People would never get over the delight of being able to say, Yes, queen, and have it like be true. Yes, queen. My loyal subjects. I salute you and I sneeze. <laughs> the first time we hear from this song, it appears on Tavidus and Back Orbiting, the double CD and cassette... It's track seven, as we've already discussed ad nauseum. The next time we hear from this song is on a Legs and Boots in 2007 from West Palm Beach on November 21st. Roll that, Oliver. By the scene, oh, so beautiful. Only not to be of use in 
see this little ditty again on her 2010 live album from Russia with Love in a really good performance. Roll that, Oliver. Empty life And we never see the song again. Isn't that a tragedy? No, I don't think so. Why? I admire her confidence. Tell me why. I admire her confidence because she knows she makes an impression. She doesn't have to prove anything to anyone. She's like, you will remember me based on this encounter that we had. And she's right. Here we are talking about her 20 plus years later. Well, we talk about everything. We're the anomaly. We're the exception to the rule. (laughs) This isn't normal? (laughs) No, perfectly normal. Yeah. (laughs) Do you suppose that's why people really adore the song? Because it is such a deep cut? It's possible. We know that people gravitate towards the rarities and deep cuts so maybe we do know that about people Mm -hmm. do they know that about themselves they need to learn that about themselves people need to be more self-aware do us all a favor know thyself know thyself so we don't have to read you don't make us do everything this episode is like a history lesson and david even suggested putting in some like classical music Mm -hmm. under the whole episode Mm mm-hmm just because we're about to talk about Napoleon Bonaparte. Yeah, and I'm wearing a giant Marie Antoinette wig piled high to the ceiling. And I know we're not talking about Marie Antoinette, but I thought it was appropriate anyway. It was the best I could do. I don't know what Josephine looked like. I think Sofia Coppola should have cast you in the film version of Marie Antoinette. Me too. I've been saying it for years. Like, I'll just sit here waiting for my phone to ring. Not tonight, David Fiend. Not tonight, Joe Sophia. Coppola. Not tonight, Joseph Nadine. Joseph Nadine. (laughs) That's me. Can you start calling me that at least for the rest of this episode? Yes. Well, since we're talking about the casting process, should we talk about who we would cast as Josephine? Shouldn't we learn more about her first? Don't you think that would be helpful to hear some character traits, to read the character breakdown? I just don't think that's how casting agents work. They just say who is pretty (laughs) and available. The beautiful Josephine de Beauharnais A Parisian socialite is best known for being the greatest love of Napoleon Bonaparte. But who was she really? Marie-Josephe Rose de Taché de la Pagerie was born on June 23, 1763, on her parents' sugar plantation in Martinique. During her childhood, Josephine developed the character and habits that corresponded to the image that the French had of the Creoles, sensual and capricious. Her habit of eating sugarcane syrup caused her teeth to deteriorate at an early age, which led her to adopt a closed half-smile that gave her an enigmatic air. The first meeting between Josephine and Napoleon Bonaparte, a military officer on leave at the time, took place in August 1795, without either of them paying any particular attention to the other among the various guests. According to various sources, they were finally introduced on October 15. On the evening of March 9, 1796, Josephine and Napoleon were married in a civil ceremony at the Hotel de Mondragon, the headquarters of the second municipality of Paris. From the very beginning of their relationship, Napoleon was particularly passionate about Josephine. He was very jealous and possessive. After his departure for Italy, 
He sent his wife passionate letters to express his love for her, but Josephine, in return, was more reserved in her correspondence. This strongly irritated Napoleon, who reproached her for this, as well as for the frequency of her letters, which he considered to be much too infrequent. He also accused her of continuing to live a mundane life while he moped about in his headquarters. Napoleon begged Josephine to join him, but his request initially went unanswered, which caused him great dismay. Preferring to remain in Paris, Josephine put forward a pregnancy as the reason for refusing the trip. Finally, Josephine agreed to join her husband and set off for Italy. When Josephine reached Milan, the extremely busy Napoleon had little time to spend with his wife. With each new departure of Napoleon, the spouses accused each other of adultery in sometimes inflammatory letters. Violent arguments erupted between the couple. The strong and independent Josephine was now forced to take a backseat to her husband, leading to an affair with Hippolyte Charles. It was in Egypt that Napoleon learned of Josephine's adultery. The furious Napoleon first considered divorce, but then found consolation in the arms of a mistress, Pauline Fouret. Upon his return from Egypt, Bonaparte was determined to get a divorce. The absence of the birth of an heir became a matter of state as Napoleon strengthened his power. When a son was born from Napoleon's extramarital affair with Eleonore de Nuel de la Plaigne, Josephine's position became even more precarious. Now convinced of his ability to be a father, Napoleon wanted an heir of his own blood. A divorce on state grounds seemed inevitable. That was just a short snippet from a really cool YouTube video. And let me tell you, it goes into Josephine's entire life. What a turn of events. It is a soap opera. It is everything you ever wanted. There's so much intrigue, mystery, what's going to happen next. And it has actually, her life has actually inspired different film and television things. For example, there's a miniseries called Napoleon in which she features prominently portrayed by Isabella Rossellini. And there's even an upcoming movie called Napoleon directed by Ridley Scott with Vanessa Kirby as Josephine. So I definitely recommend checking out that video. We'll link to it in our show notes, songsoftoriamus.com. Let's talk about Napoleon Bonaparte. Napoleon Bonaparte was born on August 15th, 1769. She's an old queen. And he was a French military <laughs> and political leader who rose to prominence during the French Revolution and led several successful campaigns during the Revolutionary Wars. He was the de facto leader of the French Republic as first consul from 1799 to 1804, as Napoleon I, he was Emperor of the French from 1804 to 1814, and again in 1815. So why not just 1804 to 1815? I don't know. Wikipedia's mm. weird. Napoleon dominated European and global affairs for more than a decade while leading France against a series of coalitions in the Napoleonic Wars. Imagine having wars named after yourself. No, you're not going to imagine it? I am. Sorry, I got lost in reverie because I was imagining it. And I was like, yes, the Davidian Wars, the Branch Davidian Wars. Wait a minute. Mine would be the Shunionic Wars. Mmm, I like it. He won most of these wars and the vast majority of his battles, building a large empire that ruled over continental Europe before its final collapse in 1815. Mm. He was one of the greatest military commanders in history, and his wars and campaigns are studied 
read in military schools worldwide. Mm. But what about his heart? <laughs> so we're going to get into it in the line by line for sure. But I wanted to ask you, who do you think was Tori's window of access to this song? Which character? Was it Josephine or Napoleon? Josephine. You think so? I think this is a perfect precursor to Strange Little Girls. If you have to track Strange Little Girls or how she maybe even achieved that idea is turning the female object in the song into the protagonist. She's really singing from Josephine's point of view. It's Strange Little Girl. It's the mother in the trunk of 97 Bonnie and Clyde. It's the business twins in Heart of Gold that are clearly written into it. It's the woman's perspective. And I think you can easily make a case that this inspired Strange Little Girls. Yeah, I definitely think it's the woman's perspective. But I feel like Tori was looking at this short strategic mastermind and was like that's me oh really yeah kind of she's like we're both five three <laughs> she's like if i'm gonna step into someone's shoes they better fit yeah <laughs> good point <laughs> he was actually five two turns out continuing on on the wikipedia page it says napoleon was mocked in british newspapers as a short-tempered small man and he was nicknamed little bony in a strong fit a nursery rhyme warned children that Bonaparte ravenously ate naughty people, the boogeyman. And Bonnie was a raging Jean-Francois. Bonnie went away. And Bonnie, he come back again, Jean-Francois. Bonnie went to Waterloo away. And there he got his overthrow, Jean-Francois. At 1.57 meters, which is 5 feet 2 inches, he was the height of an average French male, but short for an aristocrat or officer. Part of why he was assigned to the artillery, since at the time, the infantry and cavalry required more commanding figures. It is possible he was taller, 5 foot 7, due to the difference in the French measurement of inches. But some historians believe the reason for the mistake about his size at death came from the use of an obsolete old French yardstick. So it's possibly could have been five seven. Imagine already having an issue like that's your trigger, your height, and then history records you as five inches shorter forever. Not doing you any favors, but yeah, I think this is Tori. She feeds on the bones of the patriarchy. Little bony in a fit. Little bony. She does feed on the bones of the patriarchy. It's not too far from here where she's gonna hang those bones out to dry. Hi, mm -hmm. hi. You're right. You frequently use different people's uh, names in your songs. Uh, for example, uh, Greg and Lucy in Pretty Good Year, or uh, Billy in uh, Precious Things. Uh, are these people real, or are they just uh, characters you build up for your uh, for your songs? Um, Greg was definitely real. Billy was definitely real. <laughs> he was my crush when I was 12. Oh. <laughs> yeah, anyway. But how much, how much of it is, is fiction and... <laughs> how much of it is fiction and how, how many of them are real? I mean, you know, like Michael Stipe will write in a character to convey what he has to say. Michael Stipe lives in a character. <laughs> and he's a friend, I adore him, but you know, really. <laughs> oh, wow, it's exhausting being him, I'm sure. No, I mean, the thing is, it's like, um, these are real people, but sometimes a character is made up of a few people, and sometimes the guys are women. Sometimes so the names are changed. Sometimes the women are guys. Yourself? Always, yeah. So that, you know, I can still have friends. <laughs> <laughs> Hooray! All right, well, we're laying the groundwork here. Is she Napoleon or is she Josephine? We'll find out. Now, 
hearing all of those character traits and reading the character breakdown of Napoleon, who Napoleon was, do you want to cast him? And looking at the famous paintings of him, mm, for example, I love this paint- that you have your director hat on. We're reading the character breakdown. Yes, take me to the theater. The Emperor Napoleon in his study at the Tuileries by Jacques-Louis David is the main image of Napoleon on his Wikipedia page. Now, looking at him... Who would you cast in the role? And there's only, only one right answer. In the role of Napoleon? Yes, and I'm hoping that we feel each other here. He does look like someone, but who is it? You must cast Jason Alexander in the role of Napoleon. Oh, no, that's not where I was going. Oh, you don't think so? He's too old. Jason Alexander? Yeah, Jason Alexander, I feel like, is too old to play Napoleon. But he's timeless. Well, he died. Napoleon died when he was only 51, so... Oh, fine. But if you scroll down and look at the portrait of Napoleon's father, I would definitely cast Andrew Lloyd Webber in that role. As Napoleon's father? (laughs) Yeah. He looks almost exactly like him. That's true. But who would you cast as Napoleon? Mm. Here's a beautiful painting of Napoleon Bonaparte, age 23, as lieutenant colonel of a battalion of Corsican, portrait by Henri Feli Amanwa Falapatois. His mouth reminds me of someone. Who do we know with Napoleon mouth? As a young Napoleon, I would cast a young Ashton Kutcher. That's very flattering to Napoleon. I mean, he's cute in that painting. God, I want you to cast my biopic too. You're like in Jason Momoa as David. <laughs> like, obviously. Um, <laughs> clearly, clearly. You can find all these paintings on our show notes page. So you can follow along with this foolery, this Bond foolery. I'm glad we've moved on from the fashion of this era. The cut of those pants is not flattering. I would not do well with my body type. Are you looking at Bonaparte First Consul by Ingres? No, where's that? Oh, it's further down where he's in that orange Isabel coat. Isabel was clearly inspired by French Napoleon Bonaparte's fashion. Ooh. Obviously, right? Am I wrong? <laughs> yeah, you're right. I always thought more like Paul Revere as far as Isabel is concerned. But but it's clear like she has this outfit. <laughs> yeah, she has this exact outfit. She does. She really does. I'm not joking. I'll find it on our show notes page. Mm-hmm. It'll be like Napoleon as Isabel. We'll label it. Yeah, and the pose of this portrait actually reminds me of one of the photos from the Night of Hunters artwork where she's standing in front of the Abraham Lincoln portrait and mm-hmm. the piano with her hand out. Man, she is very much inspired by Napoleon more so than we knew. I would cast Haley Joel Osment as Napoleon. Really? They have that sort of square jaw. They're short enough and you want to think they're cute, but they're just not. I think I would cast a still living Philip Seymour Hoffman. Now that we know who Napoleon Bonaparte is, let's read a little bit about his wife. Okay. Shall we? Sure. Josephine Bonaparte, born Marie-Joseph-Rose Tachère de la Palgerie. Gorgeous. Thank you. Beautiful. Thank you. Are you French? Uh Uh-huh. I actually just left France. Yes. (laughs) I'm a Francophile. Anyway... She was born June 23rd, 1763, so a younger woman. Poor mom. And she died on May 29th, 1814. She was the Empress of the French as the first wife of Emperor Napoleon I. She is widely known as Josephine de Beauharnais. Are you trying to find a way to sing Enigma to me? Sigh, de Beauharnais. De Beauharnais. She is widely known as Josephine de Beauharnais. Is she widely known as that? 
By who? In the Josephine circles, in the classic okay. circles. Right, right. Her marriage to Napoleon was her second marriage. Her first husband, Alexandre Dubarnet, was guillotined during the Reign of Terror, and she was imprisoned in the Carme prison until five days after his execution. Through her children by Bouarnay, she was the grandmother of the French Emperor Napoleon III and the Brazilian Empress Amalie of Lustenberg. Members of the current royal families of Sweden, Denmark, Belgium, and Norway, and the Grand Ducal family of Luxembourg also descend from her. They are of her, to be made of her, but not enough for her. Because she did not bear any children for Napoleon, he had their marriage annulled in 1810 and married Marie Louise of Austria. Josephine was the recipient of numerous love letters written by Napoleon, many of which still exist. Hmm. I'll bet you anything Tori considers Josephine a sequel to Pass the Mission. And she's like, I traced the holy bloodline of the child of the Magdalene and Jesus and determined that she was in fact Josephine. I can see that. Josephine is the holy grail. I can see that. Nature and appearance. Biographer Carolee Erickson wrote, in choosing Josephine's lovers, she would follow her head first, then her heart, meaning that she was adept in terms of identifying the men who were most capable of fulfilling her financial and social needs. She was not unaware of Napoleon's potential. Josephine was a renowned spendthrift, and Barris may have encouraged a relationship with General Bonaparte in order to get her off of his hands. Josephine was naturally full of kindness, generosity, and charm, and was praised as an engaging hostess. I relate. So should Galene. Mm. Josephine was described as being of average height, svelte, shapely, with silky long chestnut brown hair, hazel eyes, and a rather sallow complexion. Her nose was small and straight, and her mouth was well-formed. However, she kept it closed most of the time so as not to reveal her bad teeth. She was praised for her elegance, style, and low, silvery, beautifully modulated voice. Based on that character description now, who would you cast in the role of Josephine? Olivia Coleman. Really? Yeah, maybe. Why? I just think there's a resemblance, or perhaps Emily Mortimer. She looks like Rhea Perlman to me, like a young Rhea Perlman. <laughs> That's who I cast as Josephine. <laughs> a young Rhea Perlman. Anyway, now that we know a little bit about who Josephine was, just a little bit about her, and she was married to Bonaparte, who she famously could not give him children, so he annulled their marriage. Mm. Isn't that sad? Rude. So now that we know a little bit about them, let's get into the quotes, shall we? Okay, but in a French accent, please. I don't like to appropriate the culture. We'll start with Spin Magazine, September 1999. And there's so few quotes about this song. Honestly, she hasn't really talked about the song much. So we're reading everything that we can, including like outside source reviews of the song, things like that. So this is from Spin Magazine, September 1999. And they write, what Amos has produced is a good album, but not a great one. Can you believe they called Venus not a great album? Oof. For one, it doesn't have the cohesive theme that Little Earthquakes, Boys for Pele, or From the Choir Girl Hotel had. Rather, Venus Orbiting's lyrical themes are eclectic. What's wrong with that? What's wrong with being eclectic? Go spin yourself. Also, would we say Little Earthquakes or Choir Girl had a cohesive theme? Um, absolutely, yeah. <laughs> I think so. Really? That's not where they're wrong, in my opinion. You don't think... How was Little Earthquakes with the song like Happy Phantom and China back-to-back any different than this? Well, the whole cohesive theme is about finding your voice 
Well, Venus's whole cohesive theme is about finding yourself in space, the heart of a woman orbiting. I'm not saying they're right. I think that's more cohesive. You just said this is where they're right. I said that they are right when it says little earthquakes, Pele and Quagro have a cohesive theme. I didn't say they were right and that Venus doesn't, and that's what you're indicting me on. All right, all right. I will not go to jail for the crimes committed by Spin Magazine. Oh, She's making some sense now. There are songs inspired by Emma's experiences in 1980s LA, for example, Glory of the 80s, her relationship with her new husband, for example, Lust. That's not his name. Even one about the Empress Josephine alone after her husband has been sent into exile called Josephine. What do you think? I think it's a great album, and I'd like to get this reviewer on the line to defend his or herself. I'd like to put them on and blast. What do you think now? How do you like them apples? How do you like them Venuses? I can imagine. Well, I don't have to imagine because I was there, but I can project myself back. At the time, it seemed like Tori's career had already been long, but this is only seven years after <laughs> Little Earthquakes. Yeah, So this is, you know, phase one of her work, but it's still so different that we were all kind of like reeling from how much her sound had changed between Little Earthquakes and Choir Girl Venus, which are, you know, twinsies. So what do you think about what they said in Spin Magazine as relates to like a cohesive theme? Like what would you say the cohesive theme of Venus is? And how does Josephine relate into that? We keep finding ourselves in, I mean, we find ourselves in space. This album takes place. It's a galactic album. We're in outer space, yet we keep referencing more than more than usual it feels like as we go through these episodes more than usual like things that are organic and now here in outer space she's referencing a historical figure that definitely is not from outer space what do you think let's be honest the theme of every tori album is the heart of a woman Mm -hmm. it's just seen through different lenses or from different stages in one's life so this is newly married, newly stable woman exploring who she is in the context of this relationship or this phase of her life and dressing it up in purple techno talk. You want to read this from the San Francisco Chronicle from September 26, 1999? Yes, I do. The 11 new songs on Venus range from hypnotic and rhythm heavy to airy and romantic like me. Some, such as the subtly spooky suede and the vengeful Juarez, recall Massive Attack or Nine Inch Nails. But Amos's trademark piano ballads are also present, including Josephine and Lust, whose melodies convey a timeless longing. That, I think, is the connector right there. This timeless longing that is present in both of those. And I do think there is a correlation between Lust in the marriage bed and Not Tonight, Josephine. No Lust in the marriage bed mm-hmm. that we can explore during the line or by line. Or One Way Lust, anyway. Or, yeah, exactly. Like, One Way Lust. The title of my autobiography. From The Dent, on December 30th, 1999, it was a big scandal. Ears with feet, Menly reported, I was reading the October 99 English edition of Reader's Digest on Christmas Day, as one does. I know, I was like, we have to talk about that, Menly. And came across this interesting tidbit of info. And there, in Reader's Digest, there was a question, did Napoleon really say, not tonight, Josephine? And the answer was, there were circumstances when he might have used words to this effect. Napoleon resolved to divorce the Empress Josephine because of her famous infidelities while he was at war and because she failed to produce an heir. When he got back from battle in October 1809, Josephine found Napoleon offhand and discovered he had ordered the doors between their apartments at Fontainebleau to be blocked up. This could have been when the famous rejection was issued. Two months later, they were divorced. 
By the late 19th century, the phrase had become popular in music hall sketches, and a song called Not Tonight, Josephine was sung by music hall performer Flory Ford in 1915. And while I tried very hard to find that for y'all, I was unable to do so. I searched far and wide. I don't think it's available anywhere. I would be shocked if anyone had a copy of it. I don't think it survived. It was written in 1915, after all. But I did find this 1940s foxtrot by André Musette Orchestra called Not Tonight, Josephine. Roll it, Oliver. Not tonight, Josephine. Not tonight. There's no moon, Josephine. Shining bright. There's no night, King Hill. And no stars are up above. That's a heck of a night for making love. Not tonight, Josephine. I regret. Let's postpone Josephine, our duet. Any time will be all right, but not tonight. Have the heart, Josephine, not tonight. No, 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 What do you think about that? Had you heard this phrase before being introduced to it in the song? No. I wasn't studying French rejections. I was just living through my own American ones. Ah. This phrase is like part of our vernacular, though. It's definitely like old timey, like I think an older generation uses it. But I have absolutely heard old people say, not tonight, Josephine. Wink, wink. You have? Yes, I have. You have? Yeah. Wow. I literally have not. I guess I run with a different circle of old people. Yeah. What do they say? Maybe later, Phyllis? You know, they actually say something. I'm not sure of the translation, but I've heard it. It's no esta noche, Josefina. I'm not sure what that means. <laughs> I feel like we're maybe overlooking how difficult it was for Napoleon to say that. If he died, because his, his famous last words were France, the army, and Josephine. So if he died being in love with her, still to his dying breath, how difficult it must have been to reject her. But what do you mean how difficult it must have been? It was his decision. Doesn't mean it was an easy decision. If he's rejecting her because she cheated on him multiple times, I didn't know that. I'm just reading this here right now in this article. Reader's Digest told me she had multiple infidelities. And if he comes home and finds out that like he already has issues with his height, he's already got like Napoleon syndrome, which I wonder if it was called that before him, but he's got Napoleon syndrome. It was, and he was like, I have it. This is so weird. It's weird. He's probably really hurt by her, and it probably hurts a lot to have to reject her. Not tonight, Josephine. I am not sure that that phrase is connected to her infidelity because it means or is associated with kind of spurning someone's sexual advances. I chose that to mean he was too focused on his military strategy and she was always trying to like come on to him at night when they'd get into bed and he'd push her off and be like, no, not tonight, Josephine. According to Reader's Digest, it only happened when he returned from the battle and he blocked the doors between their two apartments. Meaning like, I heard what you did. Don't come at me. And then she's, of course, trying to make amends or make reparations or like try to be intimate. And he's like, not tonight. No. Mm-hmm. That's how I always took it. I mean, that's how I've always taken it since I read this piece in Reader's Digest 15 minutes ago. On Christmas Day. I am ears with feet menly. I knew it. Why don't you read this from Rolling Stone, December 1999? But just when it seems Amos has given herself over to the seductions of electronics, she pulls out a hard stopper. In this case, it's Josephine, a stunning, regret-strewn, cowboy junkie-sounding quickie. That's a great way to describe the song, I think. I think so, too. It doesn't sound unlike their cover of Sweet Jane. It's got that texture and that open space vibe. Yeah, there's like a kind of warm droning. 
Yeah. Yeah. Have you ever given yourself over to the seduction of electronics? Yeah. I play hours of Mario Kart every week. Mm-hmm. I'm in trouble when I walk into a Radio Shack. Really? Yeah. I'm like overwhelmed and seduced by the rows and rows of electronics. I'm like, take me. Mm. I don't think there are any more Radio Shacks, are there? Says you. You found the final one? It's like the last blockbuster. There's one lone Radio Shack out there. And you go visit it often? I do. And to make sure it's okay. This is from A Piano Liner Notes, 2006. She says, I think that Yes, Anastasia contains the passion that I have with history. Historical figures show up every once in a while in the songs. In Jackie Strength and Josephine, you'll see them come up every so often, these female icons, not only mythological characters, but also historical women that I try and spotlight through the music. So it seems... And I think we can assume because we know Tori so well or we know her writing style so well and her music so well that we can assume she's telling the story of Josephine through Josephine, right? Yeah. You do know her pretty well. Yeah, that she's illuminating a forgotten woman in the story. Can you tell me which hand she uses? No, I can't. We'll try. Why don't you read this from an interview with Steve Caton for the Virtual Guitar Magazine that took place on October 1999. With Tori, I'm always given a great deal of latitude to create on my own. 99% of the time, I get the thumbs up. There are times, like in the case of a song called Josephine on the new album, where everyone was convinced that there was no place for a guitar part. That song was slated to go out with vocal, piano, bass, and drums. I fought hard to be on that one because I really liked it, and I thought it could be better. It just sounded unfinished to me. I went for a Beatles-like approach, which I think ended up working out pretty well. Also, there are times when I fight not to play in a song, because I believe it doesn't need anything else. Usually, you know pretty quickly whether something is going to work, or if you are banging your head against the wall. He's like, no, I will not play on winter. I shan't. I shan't. Don't make me do it. She wanted wah-wah guitar on there. Snow can wah-wah wait. (laughs) I do love this insight into the creative process, and I appreciate how invested Caton he was in the songs, that he really pushed for something if he thought it needed it. Invested he can be. Can be. Invested he was. <laughs> I agree with you. I like hearing little tidbits about how things were recorded and how things came to be as we know them. And I do think that he adds a lot as far as texture goes. And that was what he was really good at was creeping in around the edges, you know, like finding the space, like finding space for it. Yeah. And I thought he was really good at that. And what I love about so much of his work is you could listen to this song and After you played it for someone, if you asked them to list all the instruments that were on it, I bet you they would not say guitar. A lot of times, yeah, because it was just there. It was like so part of the texture and the fabric. Mm -hmm. You can actually hear the guitar really well in the panned version. Roll that, Ollie.
I'm on the line with Nathan Chastain from Atlanta, Georgia. He is a Josephine superfan, and we're talking for the first time. Hi, Nathan. Hi, Ephraim. How are you? I'm great. I want to hear how you came to Tori. Tell me how you discovered her music and how you discovered our podcast. Okay, great. Yeah, I found Tori in spring of 95 through BMG Music Services, you know, CDs for a penny thing. Mm Mm-hmm. And I was obsessed with Courtney Love. And Well, this has been Nathan Chastain speaking live <laughs> on our <laughs> podcast. <laughs> right? So I had read Tori's name in conjunction with Courtney, and I just did it on a whim. It was just like, okay, well, I'll see what that's about. And Under the Pink showed up, and it floored me. It absolutely floored me. What was your favorite track on Under the Pink? Um, Cloud on My Tongue. And then I was obsessed with it, and I went to the mall with a friend of mine and to Sam Goody, and they had a good year single, and it had Honey on it, and I became completely obsessed from that point on. So it was really Honey that turned me into a collecting bootlegging machine. (laughs) Well, take us to Josephine. What about Josephine? This sweet little song, what draws you towards it? You know, initially, when I first heard it the night Venus came out, I was struck by Tori singing to another woman. Like, it sounds like she's singing to another woman. And I thought that was amazing. It was just kind of this gay subtext. And then the fact that it leads right into riot poof. To me, it was just, wow, it was this really kind of groundbreaking moment for me and hearing it at 19. And it made me want to know more. So a couple years later, I started reading a lot about Josephine herself, and I really related to her. Mm, tell us. Give us a master class. Well, she had grown up in Martinique, and then she traveled to England and married a man, and, you know, had a couple kids, and they were imprisoned during the Reign of Terror. And she was so traumatized by this experience that it caused her to become infertile, but she didn't know this. So when she married Napoleon, she couldn't give him children. You know, as a gay man, you can't have children naturally. So there was this automatic relation there. And also, Napoleon ended up leaving her because she couldn't produce an heir for him. So she ended up kind of exiled from him and the court and she was replaced with a younger woman who could give him an heir. That's so depressing. I said good vibes only. <laughs> good, Yeah. But Napoleon really, really loved her. On his deathbed, the last things he said, even well after he had divorced her, was France, the army, and Josephine. Josephine was the last thing he ever said. So he was still madly in love with her. And I thought that was such a beautiful story that this man still loved this woman, even though he had done something really terrible to her. The story initially fascinated me, but then I didn't realize it was kind of projecting into my own life. I met a man at 21. We ended up getting married on our 15th anniversary. And Josephine had really been a huge thing about conquering and getting through it. I ended up playing it at our wedding. And four months later, his mom died and he was an only child and he fell apart. And where I'd once seen Josephine as this kind of fairy tale love song, I really saw it for what it was. And it was kind of this very heartbreaking moment. That's how I related to it, was that it, you know, when she says, like a dream, Vienna seems, she's talking about a younger woman, and I was left for a younger man. 
So um, that was how I very much related to it. So this song that I thought was this very romantic thing turned into something that really pulled me through that divorce. So it kind of came full circle as far as the story of the song goes and the story of your experience with it. Absolutely. And then, oddly enough, soon after we separated, I met a man, this wonderful guy, and he taught me antique shopping. (laughs) And we kept coming across all these Josephines, like these Josephine statues and Josephine paintings. And it was just the wildest thing I had ever seen. So she became kind of like this odd talisman to get me through that. So I, it was it was just beyond bizarre. So I have like a little Josephine collection. Oh, you do? I actually do. I've found a portrait, a drawing of her by a English painter named Orchardson that hangs in my sitting room. And it's called The Parting of the Ways, and that's where she's reading the letter where Napoleon's telling her he wants to divorce her. Oh, God. If anyone ever captured that moment in my life, I'd kick their ass. <laughs> Put the paintbrush down. (laughs) This is private. Yeah. Looking back on your experience and your milestone of a song in your life, what's your favorite line? What's your go-to line? Impossible possible. Oh, really? Absolutely. Because to me, no matter how bad it gets, even the impossible is possible. And I know that sounds really corny or trite, but I really hung on to that for a long time. It doesn't at all, because I feel like in that moment when you find that the one you thought loved you no longer loves you, it feels impossible, but that's like a moment of strength, too. Oh, absolutely. And I, you know, I've moved on, and my life is great now, but I never Stop forget bragging. the bragging. <laughs> <laughs> there is a happy ending, so. Well, I'm glad to hear it. And Nathan, will you let everybody know where they can find you on social media? My name on Instagram and Twitter and everything is Impossible Honey. Oh, okay. Is that where it comes from? Uh, yeah. absolutely impossible honey follow nathan on instagram and twitter we'll link to social media stuff on our show notes page songsoftramus.com thank you so much for being on the show thank you so much efren you have a wonderful night you too bye here's white knight instrumental with their cover of josephine we love a jazz cover songsoftramus.com are struck by the lyrics that you write. They're so poetic and people try to decipher them and find out what they mean. Do you find that um, enjoyable, that people are sitting down trying to dissect what the meaning is? Um. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think sometimes people will come up to me and say, you know, you have no idea what this song is about. And I'm like, fair enough. You know, you have your own take on it. Right. I'm open to that. Right.
Not tonight, Josephine. It's as a phrase used to spurn someone else's sexual advances or overtures. The phrase is usually attributed, probably incorrectly, to Napoleon Bonaparte. Oh, not tonight, Josephine. I'm too tired. There's no evidence whatsoever, though, that Napoleon ever uttered these words. There's certainly no printed record of them in any language in his lifetime. The Oxford Dictionary of Quotations lists the phrase as early as 20th century. The earliest reference that we can find is to a 1911 recording of a song with a name composed by Seymour Firth and sung by Ada Jones and Billy Murray. The first day Josie started as the new stenographer. She won the boys at first or second but Jimmy was the one she'd rather have dictate to her. That week he called around most every night. But it isn't right now, is it, to the girl he goes to visit when he never asked her out in all that time. So one evening she took chances, said she liked good shows and dances, but she murmured as he clutched his lonely dime. Not tonight, not tonight, Josephine, because my cash won't stand the strain. But wait until my payday for a play day and we'll have one gay day. If Not tonight, Josephine. Why the phrase came to be coined isn't clear. Had it been earlier, it might be plausible that it was a piece of anti-Napoleonic sentiment, which was rife in England a century before the song was penned. By the 20th century, the strong feelings against Napoleon had abated. The couple were divorced, so it may be that it refers to some real or imagined event in Napoleon and Josephine's life. Thoughts? So I just always picture a couple going to bed at night and one reaches their hand out, maybe places it on the shoulder of the other to kind of initiate something. And the partner is just like, uh, no, not tonight and rolls over and goes to sleep. And then they kind of live in their separate worlds, going to sleep silently, hmm. for example. So sad. It is sad. Yeah, I do picture, obviously, there's a couple at the beginning of the song. There's someone saying not tonight, Josephine, to another person. And I think that Tori was inspired maybe by that phrase. And whether or not it exists historically, whether or not it was actually uttered, it's become a part of history, right? Sometimes things that don't happen take on great significance and become, you have to think of this as truth, even though it, maybe it didn't happen, but it is thought to have happened. So it is then the cultural truth, you know? And it's weird how that can happen. So what's the access point here for Tori? Why is the song on this album and why is she exploring this couple and the dynamic between them? I think possibly the idea of being a woman and a wife who is lonely, at the heart of it is loneliness. Normally, if you're just like a girlfriend that's burned, you can go out and get another boyfriend, you know? But now if you're a wife that's being rejected, like that's not what you expect to happen in a marriage bed, right? Like that's got to bring up some feelings. Perhaps. I mean, I don't know what the access point is, but perhaps. I think for most of Tori's life and up until this point in her career, she's been exploring relationships that didn't work out and had also kind of resigned herself to never getting married or maybe never settling into that kind of stability. So now that she has, I think she's kind of looking out at possible timelines into the future. Like, what are we going to be like 30 years from now? What if we lose the, dare I say it, spark? Or because I've always kind of been like the lioness or the hunter or whatever she would say. Is there going to come a time when I feel like 
I'm not quite the draw that I was or that my husband isn't as attractive. Like, whatever. I feel like that's part of it. What do you think? Kind of fear about spending the rest of your life with someone and whether or not your connection is going to stay as strong as it is at the beginning. Well, she's all, she did talk about recently at the fireside chat with Noah Michelson. She talked about how some women have the fear of their husband finding a younger woman. She basically copped to being one of those women that has that fear. And in context of talking about 29 years and a, a different song that never made the album or that was rewritten in that context, she talks about that. But I think you can see this thread even beginning here because... If she is taking on the persona of Josephine, or if she is stepping into Josephine's shoes with this next line. In an army strength, therein lies the denouement. In an army strength, therein lies the denouement. You thought it was one way, and in that way, it became your demise, mm. you know? It's very poignant if we look at it from the perspective of Josephine, who was never able to give Napoleon an heir, because it's no secret, Tori talked a lot about the challenges that she was having around motherhood at this point in time. I wonder if she's looking at her partnership thinking like, what if we're never able to achieve that? Like, what if I'm just never able to have a child? Will my husband maybe eventually reject me because of that if I can't give him a baby? Wow. I'm sure at this point she's maybe, you know, she did talk about after the miscarriage sort of giving up on that dream. Mm -hmm. And she even, there's even a quote that we read earlier in the season where she's like, well, motherhood kind of passed me by. So she's already speaking of it in the past tense. I really feel like that's the heart of this song. Oh, that's interesting. It never occurred to me, but that's great. In an army strength, lies the day. Denouement is defined as the final part of a play, movie, or narrative in which the strands of the plot are drawn together and matters are explained or resolved. We actually have a quote from Tori about this line, actually, from Pop Matters magazine on May 11, 2014. They ask her, they say, Unrepentant Geraldine's reminds me a lot of my favorite album of yours to Venus and Back in terms of structure and experimentation. One of my favorite songs from that record is Josephine. I've always wanted to ask you, and can't believe I haven't until today, what does the phrase, in an army strength, therein lies the denouement, mean to you? And Tori says, when you think your army is so strong that you invade Russia and you lose it all, so your end becomes lost. Although you have the strongest army in the world, you lose, and you lose because of the narcissism that's of the moment, the ego, not seeing your humanity, not seeing that if you're not really focused and playing out possibilities and probabilities, then you make very destructive decisions. When you think you're invincible, fireproof, however you want to say it, then you get careless. Even though you have the strongest army in the world, when you're careless, you can destroy everything. Mm. Thoughts? I think that's insightful. And she almost says a version of what I kind of said at the beginning of the line by line, which is this song seems to be exploring a possible timeline of her relationship. Like this is a way of saying if I'm not careful and I don't continue to do the work and tend to it, I might lose it. Like don't get too cocky and declare victory just because you've got this thing. Like that doesn't mean that it can't go away. I agree with that. And I want to tie that back to the idea of the younger woman that we brought up earlier, too, is like to be rejected if she's putting herself into the shoes or into the role of the woman who's being rejected, not tonight, Josephine, then she must feel like, what did I do to lose it all? You know, and that's where I felt like the younger woman kind of comes in or the younger woman type or trope, you know, mm -hmm. I don't know. There's a lot. I feel like maybe I'd always heard this line from Napoleon's point of view just because he led an army, but 
she's got her own interior army, maybe. And Tori loves this kind of military battle imagery. She talked about it throughout Boys for Pele, so I wonder if she's sort of carrying that idea with her and now is looking at it from the other side. Like the woman who was looking for that relationship and that love, and now she's the woman who has found it. So what do I do now? Or who am I now? Mm -hmm. And then, like you said earlier, too, don't get cocky. Just because you have it doesn't mean it can't go away. And so what can she do and what does she have to do to tend to it? Looking at herself from the outside, looking at herself as a married woman from the outside. Yeah. I kind of imagine that's Josephine reaching out to her like Anastasia did. Like I have something to tell you or there's a story here that you need to be looking at. That's what that line means to me. I feel like that's pretty literal. Yeah, I think that's Tori, too. Mm -hmm. And if this whole beginning, then, is Tori, not that I'm saying that it is, but we can explore it if it is. Not tonight, Josephine may be saying to the muse or to the whatever's coming through, I'm putting you on hold because I'm with my husband. Not tonight, Josephine. And don't get so cocky that you think that the muse will come back. You could lose that easily. You have to tend that as well. And from here, it's haunting me. I remember a quote that we read in another episode where she said she had to make negotiations with the songs. like Because you can be... Um really having a good time with your husband <laughs> and you kind of get this <laughs> song they're very cheeky that way i mean wow. they're manipulative because <laughs> it's sort of like if you want to finish this little tete-a-tete yeah <laughs> wait <laughs> then um, yeah then you have to promise you're gonna surrender and give every second you have to me for the next few days so it becomes this real the songs are lovers also lovers dominatrixes (laughs) by the sun so beautiful i feel like this to me kind of speaks to an image of perfection on the surface but internally things might kind of feel like they're falling apart Or that when you feel that they are, she's almost like reaching out to the river as like this perfect thing. Like how can, how can my world be falling apart if I'm in this beautiful environment? Like these things don't make any sense, kind of juxtaposed together. I guess to me that kind of brings to mind the idea of like a wealthy couple in a beautiful home who seems to have everything. And it's like, well, there's no possible way they could be unhappy, but they probably are. Interesting. To me, it brings this like sense of nostalgia, this like bucolic existence, peaceful, but, and then we get into the next line. Only not to be of use. I agree with you that It feels to me like either Tori is by the river and being transported back in time, like into this idea, or Josephine is sitting beautifully by the river. And maybe there is some visual art or maybe there's some painting that kind of gave Tori access. I don't know. But just being so perfectly made up and wrestling with your own lack of worth, your own sense of Mm self-worth, like I'm not to be of use. If my husband doesn't want to be with me, I'm nothing, you know, that idea. I love that. Well, I hate that. I hate feeling that way. (laughs) Well, I hate the idea, but I love the way you articulated it. Oh, thank you. Impossible. 
impossible. Am I wrong? I thought the official lyrics actually were impossible sauceable. You thought the official lyrics were what? Impossible sauceable. I, I adore you, but you're wrong. Are you sure? I'm 100% sure. I'm looking with my own twin eyes okay. at the Josephine lyrics in the Tavinus and Mac booklet. And it says, impossible, impossible. It's impossible that sauceable is an official lyric. I swear to God, I remember seeing official lyrics printed somewhere where it said impossible, sauceable, which is absolutely what she sings. Do you think that's what she sings? Impossible, sauceable. Yeah, I do. Tell me why. She's trancing the sauce without the blame. Is that what you think that means? Kind of. Explain more how that fits in here. Like she's drinking? I think one of the possible explanations for that lyric or what it means in concertina is infidelity or flirtation. Uh huh. And Napoleon cheated on Josephine, essentially. Or did she cheat on him? Who cheated? Napoleon cheated on her. Josephine cheated. And there's also evidence that Napoleon cheated too. All right. Well, there's infidelity here. I feel like in her Tory way, that's her way of calling back to that sentiment in an earlier song. Not unlike the way she sings, you've got the whole nation on doll force. She's like referencing American doll posse in Yo George. Now she's saying like sauceable, which is not really a word, but she created it. That's what I think. Interesting. We'll never know unless you ask her, but it's not listed in the official lyrics. Like I'm not going to say you're wrong because it's I. you make a good case for it, but... I hear impossible, sauceable, like just her, the way she sings things live, much like... You did just say sauceable, though. I'm not saying she's not saying sauceable. I think it's just the way she's singing it. I don't think it's like a word that she's creating. It's just like how, it's very much like how she vocalizes many, many things. opinion but i'm not you know who knows honestly so strange victory so strange victory like losing his heart and victory can be wonderful but like also victory can be difficult and strange tell me why i guess it goes back to the idea the earlier idea which is like you've gotten everything that you want now what if the end goal was marriage well your life didn't end you're still here and that's strange. Like, I got what I wanted. So strange, Victory. Because now, you know, mm. what's next? Yeah, I think that's right. I hear in So Strange, Victory, the idea of when you've spent much of your life pursuing a dream and then you get it, there's kind of like the moment of, oh, what do I do now? Because that's been motivating me for my entire life. But maybe also it's not what you thought it was going to be. And that doesn't necessarily mean it's bad. It might be different. Maybe it's bad. I don't know. But it's like, oh, I spent all my time chasing this thing down. And now that I have it, I'm like, mm, do I still want it? What was really going on there? Why was I looking for this thing to begin with? And now that I have it, again, in the context of like marriage or this relationship, this is another moment for me of her looking down the line. Like, who am I now? Now that we've decided to be together, we can declare that like a victory of sorts. But what is our life going to look like from this point on? I think so much of this song lives in that space. And I'm really fascinated by that space of the melancholy of getting what you want, the reality of what you want. And you described it so beautifully, like you look around and you just, okay, I've got what I wanted, what I've always wanted. Now what? 1,200 spires, the only sun in Moscow burning. 
1200 spires, the only sound, Moscow burning. I think one of the most unique things about Josephine is that she so beautifully pairs that military drum, that rhythm of this just kind of like keep moving forward with a curvaceous, sultry piano. So you've really got the dialogue between the male and the female, Napoleon at war, Josephine at home. And then not only that, but I think this whole second verse, including this, she so masterfully takes military imagery and makes it so personal. Mm -hmm. You very readily could think that Napoleon is saying this because these are actual battle images, but she's flipping them and she's making them about Josephine. And what's going on inside? Like, matters of the heart. I joked earlier. Like, what about her heart? What about his heart? Well, here it is. 1,200 spires, the only I'll take knowledge from anywhere, David, as you know. And I was looking for thoughts on the song. And I went to songmeanings.com, where Jeb Rules wrote in 2004... He wrote, I'm surprised nobody wrote about this one. Josephine was Napoleon's wife, and the song is kind of Napoleon talking to her. Well, questionable. Remember, Napoleon was running around screwing up in Russia, quote, Moscow burning, and the Tuileries was empty. Vienna was their resting stop for the troops, but the troops were decimated. Read up on Napoleon. Well, Napoleon was running around invading and cheating on Josephine, a topic that may quite interest Tory. So Napoleon is running around with his girls and his army, and Josephine is haunting him and laughing laughing at him but even still you're calling me but he will not be home to her he's doing the manly thing not tonight josephine so it's a whole other twist on that rejection idea but also really viscerally how the personal and the political can reference each other or can mirror each other and how we're experiencing her world or going through her experience within his experience or framed by his experience i love it empty life so even though Tori hasn't really talked about this song very much, I did find a quote from Pop Matters and Matt Mazur, who is obsessed with this song, clearly goes on writing about the song in an article called How to Speak Tori, Cries and Whispers, How to Speak Tori. And he talked to Matt Chamberlain and Matt Chamberlain said, there's a song about Napoleon, Josephine, from Tori's effervescent 1999 album, To Venus and Back. And when you listen to the lyrics, they're from the perspective of his wife. It's just so fascinating to me, Matt Chamberlain, because I'm not a songwriter, as far as lyrics go. So getting in her head while we were recording, just to try to find out what it is that she's going for, as far as how she wants to frame it rhythmically, it's fascinating to ask her what the song is about and how it should be presented. So he would know a little bit about it, and Matt Mazur goes on to say, hidden amongst Josephine's 1200 spires and empty Tuileries is the lyrics in an army strength therein lies the denouement which he loves and he says this references the historical the metaphorical and the poetically obtuse though the meaning of this lyric is wholly enigmatic the sound of it is completely musical much like the famous phonesthetically harmonious phrase cellar door empty Empty like the Tuileries, which, for the record, the Tuileries Palace was a royal and imperial palace in Paris, which stood directly in front of the Louvre, but it's also a river or like a location. And a friend of ours, a friend of the show, Steve Savignac, told us that it used to be a cruising spot in the 80s. Imagine cruising the Tuileries for gay guys. <laughs> I don't know. There's something about this line that makes me think of someone who's put a lot of effort into something that maybe didn't require it. Or for a more simple way to put it, they find out it wasn't a good use of their time. 
or I was maybe creating a battle where there didn't need to be one. And why was I doing that? And I came in guns ablazing with all my forces and resources only to find like an empty town. <laughs> like, oh, just kidding. There's something about it that's like getting in one's own way, maybe. Or not really looking at what's happening. I like that. I also really empty like the Tuileries to be a comment on so strange victory. Like victory is empty when you're fighting a battle against someone you love. <laughs> Mm-hmm. The Tuileries are also a garden, a public garden. What do you think the word empty? Empty? That makes me feel like I spent all my time trying to get somewhere or get something and I'm still not happy. Yeah, empty. Feel nothing. Mm-hmm. Directionless almost. Lost. Empty. Like dream, Like a dream, Vienna seems. I feel like this is a way of restating what she said about the saying, oh, so beautiful, only not to be of use. Like this kind of picturesque surface level vision of something isn't the whole truth. Or I don't know, the beauty of that doesn't actually, what am I trying to say? I don't know. You go. I agree with that. It doesn't actually reflect what really is going on. Yeah, or sometimes I guess like a beautiful object, that's as far as it goes. Like something is pretty, but then what? That doesn't mean that it inherently has value or that it can provide anything or do anything for you other than just like existing to be beautiful. It's nice to look at, but then what? And how empty that must be. If you are the person who's existing just to be beautiful, but not loved. Like you have to equate like him saying not tonight, Josephine, to a rejection. And so only not to be of use only not to be of you which is really sad like a dream vienna seems to me implies history to me implied we had it all going on at a certain point like a dream that was like a dream our courtship, our first hooking up, when we strolled in Vienna, like a dream Vienna seems, only not to be of use. Like, none of that mattered in the end. Here we are still with a wall between us. And again, taking it back to, like, the metaphor of his war, going back to Napoleon's life himself, according to Wikipedia, he beat the Austrian forces and occupied Vienna at the beginning of May 1809. So like a dream Vienna seems, even if it's compared to a war in the marriage bed or a war between them, all of it is useless. All of it's pointless, only not to be of use. But I prefer to look at it as her telling of what their Vienna was, which is something that she holds on to as a memory. It seems very nostalgic here, very wistful to me. Mm -hmm. Impossible. Sassible question mark? I always hear impossible possible. Like when we explore the live section, we're going to get into that a little bit more too. But impossible possible. Like you think that it can't happen, that a Vienna can be a dream, but be completely empty inside? Well, it's possible. Impossible. Well, it's possible, honey. Bet your life it is. Yeah. And I feel like that's how I always hear it, whether or not she says possible or she's just vocalizing to extend the word as she's known to do, but like I always think of impossible possible. Mm -hmm. In the last extremity, to advance on all 
last extremity to advance or not to advance? I hear you laughing. Thoughts? In the last extremity makes me feel desperate somehow. Like there's some sense of desperation, but an extremity is also a limb or kind of one's hands and feet. So I looked up <laughs> Napoleon extremity, hoping I would get a hit that wasn't the lyrics to Josephine. And I did. I was not familiar with the debate around whether or not Napoleon had some sort of deformity. Some people have proposed that because in portraits, he always has his hand in his pocket that he was hiding a physical deformity. But it's believed that that was not true. And that was not an uncommon pose. So we discovered that it has been claimed based on no evidence that Napoleon hit his hand because it had been deformed in battle. There's another idea that he was constantly pressing on his stomach to alleviate his chronic pain, which at least makes more sense as he is thought to have succumbed in 1821 to stomach cancer. I feel like Tori's work is always applying pressure to my chronic pain and relieving it. But in Portraits of the Era, people were commonly depicted with their hand in their jacket just because it looked kind of like stately and gentlemanly, but he probably wasn't hiding any kind of deformity. But I do love the idea of hiding one's hand in kind of like the poker sense, you know what I mean? Not revealing one's hand. So I feel like that in the last extremity kind of manages to incorporate all of that. Like I'm not showing you everything or I still have like a little bit of a strategy in my pocket and I'm not revealing everything to you. So I haven't quite lost all my power maybe. I've got like one idea left is what it says to me somehow. And I'm gonna choose what to do with that. Am I gonna move forward or not? And maybe that just means am I gonna continue to move forward in this marriage with you? I always took the last extremity to be like, the definition of extremity is the outer reaches or like the furthest point. Mm -hmm. So I've always taken that as like, we are at the end and we need to decide whether we're going to move forward or break it off now. And he broke it off now. He had it annulled. So in the last extremity, in the final moments, the decision is made to advance or not to advance. And, you know, in this particular case, they chose not to advance and I hear you laughing. When you break up with someone or when something devastating happens to you, but life goes on around you and the person maybe continues forward and he did marry someone else who brought an heir, I hear you laughing strikes me as that really devastating moment when you have to confront that the world, that you, while you're in devastating pain, the world is just moving on around you. Really? That's so interesting. <laughs> I hear you laughing or to advance or not to advance. You're saying laughingly, like I hear you laughing that phrase to advance or not to advance. Like it means so little to you that like it always struck me as really cruel. I hear you laughing. Fascinating. Why does it not strike you as cruel? No, it does not strike me as cruel. Why? How does it strike you? I hear you laughing. I hear, I hear you laughing as very distinct from the lines that come before that. And I hear kind of Josephine's ghost. I see Josephine here at the end as kind of this benevolent relationship coach or a very wise woman who is counseling Tori, perhaps. And I feel like she's saying, I know this all feels really heavy and serious, but no matter what, no matter what you decide to do or no matter what happens, like you're going to be okay. That's what that means to me. Like she's keeping it, not keeping it light, but kind of she knows that everything works out for the best and this is not going to destroy you no matter what happens i can see that and i can see that being like the beginning of the coda of this song because the next line even still you're calling me even still you're calling me is i feel tory to josephine yeah same and so i can see very much that i hear you laughing 
could be a preamble to that. And there is a, like a weird break to advance or not to advance. And there is that a strange break there that I hear vocally and musically kind of. I yeah. hear you laughing even still you're calling me. I love it because I just hear Josephine as like the supportive friend that you call when you have trouble or you just want to complain about your relationship or whatever. And she takes the situation and you seriously, but she can still make you laugh about it. And she's like, girl, I know, girl. (laughs) Not tonight. Not tonight. Not tonight, Josephine. Not tonight, not tonight, Josephine. To me, this is why Tori is so brilliant, because I feel like if she is this historical relationship coach that you're talking about, who is just kind of like a parallel figure of what Tori feels in her darkest moments in this new marriage, then she herself, Tori, and then we get into the section where she's back to talking to Josephine or back to saying, even still, you're calling me Josephine, but she's laying her to rest for now, not tonight. Like, I'm going to experience fully this marriage this love, this connection, this union, and all of that's not happening now. So she puts it away, which is a big moment of strength and courage. Like, I'm not going to destroy this. I'm going to put this away. Not tonight, Josephine. Mm -hmm. Where even Tori tells Josephine not tonight. Oh, poor Josephine. Jojo. Poor Jojo. What's your favorite lyrical moment? After our discussion, I think after our discussion, my favorite lyrical moment is I hear you laughing. Because I like this idea of a friend or mentor or trusted advisor, whether that be a real person in our life or someone that we relate to from the past who maybe we even never knew. Um, And that makes sense to me because Tori often talks about kind of collaborating with dead people. So I like this idea that if someone who has lived before resonates with us, their energy is kind of still available to us and we can have this conversation. Like, what would you do? Or what was this like for you? And maybe they'll answer. So I kind of feel like Tori was asking the question and like she's translating Josephine's answer here. And at the end, Josephine has still retained her sense of humor about it. She's like, it'll be fine. (laughs) I love that. What about you? I think my favorite lyrical moment is... In an army strength, therein lies the denouement, because it's it puts you as responsible for your own demise, and I really like that. I mm. like the idea that you are in charge of your own outcome, and the quote that we read from Pop Matters supports that as well, and I feel very connected to the idea of pride, and like in your own pride, if, if you don't keep it in check, or if you don't humble yourself, or if you don't check your ego at the door you will destroy yourself Mm -hmm. and i appreciate that sentiment as a reminder that you are responsible for your life i love the way you said that and tori herself has talked several times about being a narcissist and has referred to herself as a narcissist and taken herself to task for when her own ego has run away with her or when she's kind of been seduced by the idea of celebrity And she even specifically said during Under the Pink, looking back now, she thinks that's when her ego was at its height. And she was kind of the most insufferable, which coincidentally is also when she met Mark. So I'm wondering if she's looking at a tendency that she might have to let her ego or her overinflated sense of self, perhaps specifically as a musician, how that might sort of cloud her relationship. And she's never been one to shy away from her own hand in the matter. That is true. She's got that strong left hand. It's never hidden in her jacket. She's like, what, this? This old thing. Bang, bang, bang. (laughs) Yeah. Let's listen to Yanta, shall we? Okay. Okay.
already very warm. This feels very stately to me, befitting of an empress. Regal. Yeah, almost like entrance music. Yeah, I could see an instrumental version of this in the biopic. and beautiful <laughs> what can we say it doesn't reveal too much because the original track is so let's say simple the production is subtle so it's not quite as like oh my gosh i didn't know what was happening with the piano but very very beautiful and this song clearly lends itself to solo performances so it makes it a little surprising that she hasn't performed it very often but i mean it is kind of a hidden gem in her catalog and i think maybe she thinks of it in the same terms like a hidden gem kind of it doesn't come out very often as we'll see in the live section but yeah musically really beautiful i mean it is beautiful it's nice to hear it without the words and it's nice to hear it without the vocals just because like you pointed out stately but it is kind of simple and elegant I don't know if Tori ever has this experience, let alone with this song, but this is in the category of songs that I imagine she forgets exists somehow until she's paging through the lyric book. And then she's like, oh, yeah, I love it. And she plays it that night and then promptly forgets it again. Really? Yeah. Do you think she forgets it? Only because she has literally hundreds of songs at this point. So So the song itself is just sitting there waiting to be used, only not to be of use. (laughs) Only not to be of use. Only not. Mm -hmm. If you enjoyed what you heard, you can follow Yanta at patreon.com slash Yanta, where you can support him and his work. He's done almost every Tori Amos song, a cover of instrumental cover. You can also actually find Yanta on Spotify as well with his own original work. Isn't that exciting? Very exciting. 
If you really like sheet music, you can head over to figuratoryout.com, which is our friend Paul Roy's website, where he has compiled over 20 years of sheet music from the Yahoo group Figuratory Out, which he moderated. And you have to become a member to get access to the sheet music, but it's free to be a member. So figuratoryout.com for that. What's your favorite musical moment? I love the main riff. It's so instantly recognizable, like relatively simple, but really is a moment and makes me think of how good Tori is at creating songs with distinct identities, oftentimes using only the piano. But I also Mm -hmm. like kind of the shift into the final Not Tonight, repeated Not Tonight, Josephine at the very end. I think that's gorgeous. What about you? I think my favorite musical moment in the song, honestly, is the snare drum. I love the piano. I think the piano is beautiful. But in this song proper, I think the snare drum to me is so unique in time with the piano. It's just like such a relationship, you know? Mm-hmm. This like gorgeous, lush piano and this just like marching drum, which paints a picture of Josephine and Napoleon. Mm-hmm. He's the drum, obviously. She's the gorgeous woman. You know, the curvaceous, svelte beauty with like lush tones mm. and he's just marching on. And I love that dynamic that it creates. I guess the dynamic between the two is my favorite musical moment is that dialogue, is that relationship. Because you wouldn't necessarily think, I mean, I wouldn't. I mean, I would now. I did. And I thought it. I wouldn't have thought that these two instruments would blend or marry each other so beautifully. Mm. But in this world, they do. And also in you know Martha's Foolish Ginger, they do as well. When we get there, we can revisit that idea. But yeah, there's something really compelling about the two. You know, because a drum just by nature is itself staccato. And she plays this song very legato. So it's a man and a woman. I love the way that you said march because it does sound very military. Mm-hmm. which is appropriate given the thematic content of this song. It really is evocative to me. It's so gentle, but it captures that kind of military march feel. It makes me feel like I'm on an abandoned battlefield with just like flames burning, dotting the battlefield, but it's pretty vacant. And it's just like the aftermath of this thing that's happened. It also makes me think of the twilight mix of putting the damage on. And it's kind of like, I feel like it's almost a sequel, not only sonically, but in terms of content. Or maybe they just have a similar feel to me, like the end of something or the aftermath of something. And like, now what do I do? Looking backwards and forwards from that moment in time. I don't know. Yeah, I hear that for sure. I love it. Great job, Jojo. Well, I can't wait to hear from the super fans. I want to know what they think of this song. I want to, I want them to take me to school. Take me to a master class. Take me to school. To Josephine at Milan, Verona, 9th November, 1796. I arrived at Verona day before yesterday, my dearest love. So fatigued, I am very well, much prospered, and I love you always passionately. I mount my horse. I embrace you a thousand times. Bonaparte. Look, everybody, it's Danny on Chondo. Welcome back to the show, Danny. Hi, Eve. I'm happy to have you on for your signature song, finally, Josephine. 
Yes, thank you for having me back. Tell me everything about Josephine, why you love her, what she means to you. I want to know it all. Oh, it's such a beautiful song. It's really kind of its simplicity that stands out to me. And in this album, Tori seems to kind of pare some things down that she had been going for in Choir Girl. And I just, I really love that kind of idea. And it calls to this idea of the expanse of space and stuff like that. But I love a good historical narrative also. Oh, yeah. Um, And I know she's such a history buff. And part of the reason why I love her work so much is because it's so cerebral in many ways. But I also really love a good song that's a letter, you know, and she had done her cover of Leonard Cohen's uh, famous blue raincoat. And I like that kind of idea of a letter in a song as well. But Sonically, I love how it starts with the snare drum, sort of like a march to war. Another song that I love that starts like that is Martha's Foolish Ginger. Oh, my God. So good. So good. Yeah. I mean, of course, Napoleon, very powerful man, was the most powerful man in Europe for a while. But I know that he was terribly in love with Josephine. And allegedly, hers was the final thing that he said, her name, before he passed. Even when they were together, though, it was always very clear that his affection for her was stronger than hers for him. Oh, been there. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, exactly. And that's the whole idea. So not tonight, Josephine came to be this, like, dismissal of someone's love, right? Like, not tonight. Like, I don't feel the same for you. That resonates with me just on so many levels through so many different relationships with so many different guys. (laughs) Hundreds, Um, (laughs) hundreds. So there is that depressing element to it. But um, no, the imagery is always so gorgeous. And I do love France and Paris and stuff. Are you a Francophile? A little bit. I think, you know, uh, I did have the opportunity to go to Paris uh, several years ago now. But I think before that, I had such a like romantic idea about France and Paris. And I still do, but it's a little bit more tempered by uh, by realism uh, in that uh, it just wasn't exactly how I thought it was going to be. And that's very French in and of itself, yeah. right? This whole idea of like... We are disappointed, but such is life. Right. Like, that's how. <laughs> comme si, comme ça. Exactly. Those, that's the French. So um, I do love that. But no, I can't say that I know a terrible lot about Napoleon. Of course, the Ani DeFranco song. Oh. What's your favorite lyrical moment in this, your signature song? Uh, in an army strength therein lies the denouement uh which was actually one of the first times i had ever heard that word i had to like look it up and being such a literary buff i felt silly but this was you know i was 19 at the time but i I love this idea of like you know you can have the strongest army you can be the most powerful man in the world but you can't make someone love you oh my god (laughs) i know no i'm not even joking so the first time i ever saw her do it alive was on the strange little tour Uh and just the second it came it was one of those immediate responses where your eyes are just welling up you can't control it And I think that was kind of one of the first times I was like, I have a very visceral, emotional response to this song, like for no really good reason other than it just resonates. Best reason more than any, I think. 
I agreed. <laughs> yeah, it's just like if you can't get through listening to a song without like weeping, then I, I would say it's your signature song. <laughs> <laughs> I also really appreciate how on the album it sort of like kicks off this like trilogy of songs almost. Yeah. <laughs> just like bleeds into the next, into the oh, next. And the motivation of this album just goes for a while. Danny, remind everybody where they can find you online and what you do. <laughs> Sure. Um, people can find me a number of places. Uh, my website is mrpixie.com. You can find me at Mr. Pixie on Facebook or on Instagram. You can follow me at Mr. Pixie underscore radio. You can also search Mr. Pixie on Spotify, iTunes, or any streaming service if you're curious about the music that I make. Follow him immediately, Mr. Pixie underscore radio on Instagram. And let's talk again. Email us and tell us your next signature song in the chronology so we can have you back. Absolutely. I love it. Bye. Bye. To Josephine I belong, Verona. How happy I would be if I could assist you at your undressing. The little white breast, springy and firm. The adorable face. The hair tied up in a scarf a la Creole. Good enough to eat. You know well that I have not forgotten the small visits to your little black forest. If I give it a thousand visits and impatiently await the moment to be there, to live inside a Josephine is to live in paradise. To kiss the mouth, eyes, shoulder, breast, everywhere, everywhere. Bonaparte. I'm on the line with Shane DeCristina from Boston. He is a supporter and a friend and a Josephine super fan, right? Yes, indeed. Welcome to the show. How are you? Thank you. I'm good. First of all, tell us your Tory story. Let's do you some justice. I heard your team noun. I am very much team noun to the point where I had not even considered any other possibilities until that episode. I don't even know what a verb is. Mm-hmm. So um, I had a pretty um, stifled adolescence, I guess you could say. I didn't really have much of a music taste until college. I forget even how any of it started, but I started to slowly accumulate some artists that I was into, like Fiona Apple, Regina Spector, you know, the usuals in a way. And then my mom, who actually isn't really a Tory fan at all, was just like, hey, you would like Tori Amos. You should listen to Tori. And I discovered her. I think the first song I ever heard was Winter, but she very quickly became my absolute favorite. And, you know, I'm on the younger end, so I was like buying the albums off iTunes. I don't think anyone's using Spotify yet, but I just remember buying all these albums off of iTunes and just slowly working my way up through, at that point, it was like 2013. So like 20 years of work all in the span of like a week. So Wow. What was that like? Was it a roller coaster? Oh, yeah. I mean, going from, you know, Boys for Pele to Beekeeper in the span of like three days, I was like, all right. I mean, I loved all of it, but like definitely some whiplash there. Yeah, you're like, we're heartbroken, but we're sensual woman now. Um, <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> talk to us about your obsession with Josephine, how she stood out from the crowd, from all the songs, especially if you're going from, as you said, Boys for Pele to The Beekeeper in three days. That's like a hundred mm-hmm. songs right there. How does Josephine, <laughs> this two, three minute song, how does she stand out? Mm-hmm. So I remember very clearly like the first time I heard it, you know, I was going through Venus and, you know, you have these dark vibes of suede. And then on the other end, you have riot proof, which is, you know, awesome, but insane. And just Josephine to me, it stood out immediately because it's kind of this 
port in the storm almost to me. And like, obviously, I'm aware of the historical backdrop and connotations there. And that definitely plays into it. But for me, it's more just the sort of overwhelming feeling that the song gives me. There's this tranquility to it. And, you know, I'm a still am was very much more so than a very anxious person. And I just remember, like, being in college, I don't know, God knows what my roommates thought, but I would just sit there with my eyes closed with, like, headphones in, listening to this one song over and over and over, just because, like, sometimes it was the only thing that could, like, get me to a calmer place. And I see a lot of songs in very, like, visual color terms, not so much in, like, a synesthesia kind of way, but just my associations. And to me, Venus as a whole and Josephine, in particular, is like this warm, dark blue, almost like an early morning. And there's just sort of this sense of calm, like you have a new day, a new opportunity. It's just this really kind of lulling, hypnotic song. And there's the beautiful, spacey instrumentation. And the one thing I love about this song is that, and I'm sure you know this, but like, if you're listening to it on headphones, one thing you can do is like, if you take out one ear, you can just hear the piano and voice and then the other ear is just drums and voice and they're both beautiful and it's just this kind of it's one of her most beautiful melodies and some of her most beautiful production as well too what's your favorite lyrical moment on this song so for me that one really ties into the emotional impact effort for me so my favorite is in an army strength there in life the denouement it's kind of like this and obviously again there's a you know napoleon connotations but like to me that's just that line is just sort of like beautifully fatalistic almost it's kind of like what will be will be and therein lies the denouement like what's going to happen is going to happen and you can obsess and worry about whatever you want but at the end of the day it's going to just be what it is and i don't know even though it's not like a positive or a comforting line on its surface to me that one has always really stood out to me in a, in a beautiful way talk to me about the music are you a musician or you, you're a teacher I play piano very, very amateurishly. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, what do you think of the music? <laughs> Any thoughts on the music? I absolutely love the music in this song. I love the drums. I think it's one of her, um, really one of her, I guess, warmest piano performances, especially from that era. I really love Venus as a whole. I think sometimes it gets this reputation that it's like maybe dated in some way because it's got like the late 90s. You know, Who says that? Who says that? I, I don't say it. I absolutely don't say that. No, I love it. I think that it's maybe her best production. I think it's such Josephine, but the whole album is just so complex and layered, and there's so much to dive into in terms of the nuances of the instrumentation and the production. And I love the way that whatever like sounds are going on at the end, I love the way that that leads into Riot Poof 2. So yeah, it's I love the music. I love the marching drums. And, you know, especially with the band, this tour, this is definitely going to be my request. So please tell everybody where they can find you online so they can stalk you. So I can be found on Instagram at Shane DeCristina. And that's D-I-C-R-I-S-T-I-N-A. And of course, we'll link to that in our show notes at songsoftramus.com. Thank you for being on our show. And let's absolutely talk again, Shane. Absolutely. Thank you. Bye. Bye. To Josephine at Milan, I write you, my beloved one, very often, and you write uh, very little. You are wicked and naughty, very naughty, as much so as you are fickle. It is unfaithful so to deceive a poor husband, a tender lover. 
Ought he to lose all his enjoyments because he is far away? Born down with toil, fatigue, and hardship? Without his Josephine, without the assurance of her love, what has left him upon earth? What can he do? We had yesterday a very bloody affair. The enemy has lost many men and has been completely beaten. We have taken the whole country around Manchu. Adzu, adorable Josephine. One of these nights, your door will open with a great noise. As a jealous person, and you will find me in your arms. A thousand loving kisses. Bonaparte. I'm on the line with Robin Hewitt, who is a friend, generous supporter, and a Tory fan since the 90s. Where did we meet, Robin? The first time I remember you was in 2005 after the Houston show when we rode back to Chris Kelly's house. That's the first time you remember me? Yes. Wow. But, I mean, I remember you online, but that's the first time I remember spending time with you. It was you and me in the front seat, you driving. Always. And we really got to know each other. And you talked about Bernie Spears. Oh, I did? Yeah. That tracks. That tracks. <laughs> You're a <laughs> Josephine super fan, much to my surprise. Start with your Tory story. Tell us the whole thing. If you want more details, you can go to her tour all year up Episode, but tell the ones who haven't listened to your episode yet. So I got into Tori Amos in 1995, and my friend was playing Past the Mission, and she said, Trent Reznor is in the background of this song, and that's what drew me in. Uh, like, oh, it's a Trent Reznor inside through that. And so I got Under the Pink that following week. And then you fell in love? Fell in love. What about Josephine? Take us through your life in 1999. What happened when Josephine came out that made the song slap you across the face? So I remember the day that uh, Tabina from Back came out and I took the day off from work. And as I did at the time, either from work or from school, and I sat down and I just wanted to take in all of the songs. And this one stood out, A, for really the way it starts out just that one two three four and then the drums come in into one speaker and then her piano comes in and that's what got me in it was just the way that it started and then the more i listened it was such a different song from the rest of the songs like on that album it felt like it could have come from a different era or a different time period for her album. Do you recall, since you were a fan at that time, as I was, do you recall the like temperature of the forums where everybody was like, that's her gift to us. The fact that you can like isolate the piano on one earphone is her gift to us because she had yes. like, you, oh my God, I was recalling that with David. It's just really funny to me. We're so extra. Yeah, I remember he talked a lot about it too. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so take us through, why this song though? Why, what do you love about it? You're a woman. Josephine was a woman. Is there a connection? <laughs> Teach well, us the heart of woman. Vaginas are the connection. Oh, great. Okay, let me write this down. <laughs> I, I just really like the storytelling in the song and how it's different from the rest of the way that Tori writes songs usually. You know you know how Tori's known for her, her trademark is as if she's writing from her diary. Right. And I feel like from here, she's writing from Napoleon's point of view to Josephine and how this is his vulnerable moment to his wife. But it ends up where if you know the story of Napoleon and Josephine, you know that it's pretty much an unrequited love. And I really liked that part of it where it's his vulnerability, but from the point of view of the woman, then she's dismissing it. So like taking that point of view, do you think this is a song that she could have only written when she was married or... 
That's an interesting question. I don't think so. I think she could have written it like in the Under the Pink era. I can see it. What's your favorite lyrical moment? Only not to be of use. Oh, really? Yeah. What does that mean to you? Um, her dismissal of him. And he knows it. But he's writing to her anyway. Oh, wow. I see that. Okay. Not to be of use. What chord does that strike in you? And where do you stand with it like 22 years later? Well, it's interesting. I don't know if you remember, but Pretty Good Year is my favorite song. Of course I remember. Uh, yes. And those lyrics never really resonated with me that it was the music first and foremost, mm-hmm. which I found interesting because usually with Tori, it's lyrics first and music. But my favorite song is music and the lyrics. And it's pretty much the same with Josephine. I love the story in it. And I love that she's the narrator and she removes Tori from it, even though she's still in it. For me, it's the way she sings it, not so much what she's singing. The yearning and the emotion in her voice Mm. has grabbed me and kept me. Wow, I love that. I love it because she is so, like, you can kind of hear the ache, you know? Yes, you can hear how he knows it's unrequited. Oh. He's such a strong figure in history, but he can't get her. When she says, um, in an army strength, therein lies the denouement, there's a quote where she says, like, you know, you can have the strongest army in the world, but when you have an ego, like, you'll destroy yourself from within, kind of. Exactly. You can be all of it, but there could be this one thing that you don't get that you want so bad. Yes, no matter how strong he is, he just, he can't have her. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what he has. The money, the power, the invasion. You're married now, but have you ever experienced unrequited love? And so do you understand the aching in the song? Oh, yes. Oh, tell us more. Seventh grade through twelfth grade. For the same person? Yes. No. Yes. Oh, what was his name? Joseph? James. Oh, (laughs) if you're listening. (laughs) Let me just say James. Let me just say James. I'm thinking about. (laughs) Okay, I'll beep it out. (laughs) As if he's ever going to hear Hey, he could be a huge Tory fan. You don't know. He should be. Oh, I do know he's not. Oh, I do. <laughs> I know everything about him. I stalked him from 7th through 12th grade. <laughs> what modern actress would you cast in the role of Josephine? Julianne Moore. Julianne Moore. Yeah, Julianne Moore. Julianne Moore. Gorgeous. Because I feel like she could dismiss a man. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yes. And be classy and elegant while doing so. Suck my dick. Yeah. <laughs> Motherfucker. <laughs> Have you seen it live? Yes, I have. I've been lucky enough to see it three times throughout the years. Um, Any of those requests? None requests. I've never requested it. She just felt your presence. She must have. Yeah. Um, The first time I saw it was in St. Louis in 2001. Okay. And that was a huge surprise. I mean, great show in general, but I feel like that was just, that was thrown in there. And it just, it worked so well in the set list that I felt like the rest of the set list was all very, a lot of it had that yearning to it. It had Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas. Oh, God. Yeah. Um, it had the wrong band. I don't know if you remember. Were you there for that show? I was not there in St. Louis 01. No, I started in Houston, which I think was the next night, right? Uh yeah. yeah. And then I saw her at San Antonio in 2007. I was there for that. Yes. I think it ended the show. And what a beautiful way to end that gorgeous show. Mm-hmm. And then I saw it in Dallas in 2017. And I believe I was sitting next to you. Uh-huh. I was fishing. Who has been your favorite Josephine companion through the years? <laughs> <laughs> Michael Morrison in 2001. Oh, okay. Well, that's fair. I, I got nothing on Michael Morrison. <laughs> it, Tied. 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 No, no, no. Don't be generous. Be honest. Michael Morrison for the win. 
You can find Robin on Instagram at sorry Robin underscore you've been murdered. Murdered? <laughs> murdered question mark. <laughs> no, I almost said married. Oh, <laughs> say sexy, don't get married, Josephine. <laughs> well, thank you so much for sharing your interpretation with us. Is there anything else you'd like to say before I end the recording? Team down. Oh, great. <laughs> I, I love to end with the truth. Preach. Preach. To Josephine at Milan, Verona, 13th November, 1796. I do not love you at all. On the contrary, I detest you. You are a naughty woman, very crooked, very, very unfeeling, very ungenerous. You do not like me at all. You do not love your husband. You know the pleasure which your letters give. And yet you do not write him six lines thrown together by chance. In what way do you employ yourself all day, madam? What affair so pressing robs you of the time for writing to your face of a lover? What affection interferes and puts one side's loves, the tender and constant love which you promised him? Who can this wonderful personage be, this new lover, who absorbs all your time, occupies your days, and prevents you from devoting yourself to your husband? Josephine, take care. Some fine night, the door will be thrown open, and behold me, hold me, hold me. Seriously, Zor, my beloved one, I am uneasy not to hear from you. Write me very soon of those kind and pleasant things which fill my heart with affection and pleasure. Bonaparte. This is a cover by Alison Crow. You can find this on our show notes page, songsoftoryamus.com. Not tonight, Josephine. In an army strength, therein lies the day For me, you're haunting me. By the signs of
David, or shall I say, Lolonge? Let me take a moment to take in your redecorating, as always. It's sparse, it's minimalist, it's empty in here, like the Thuiri. I tried to do what Tori did in 2022 and just have three stark lights, a blue, a white, and a red for the French flag. Oh, right, right, of course. That's what I tried to do. Can you see? It's going to be subtle. It's very clean. Mm -hmm. But I did bring the macarons you asked for. Oh, thank goodness, because I am starved. I like to munch while we do the live section. Me too. All sections. Mm -hmm. All sections. You're right about that. That's why I invested in craft services for our recording. Oh my gosh. Worth it. How was your break? It was wonderful. People don't understand that to get up to the lounge, it's a very long elevator ride. It's a rooftop lounge. Mm. People don't understand. We made it outdoors for COVID, but then we liked it. So we're just going to keep it. We are here today to discuss Josefina and how many times Tori Amos has performed this song live. I think we're up to the task, David. What do you think? Today could be our day. Josephine is the kind of song that really hasn't changed over the years. It's sort of a nugget. It's a brief nugget, a two and a half minute interlude almost, I would say. What do you think? Yeah. Do you think she made it diminutive to match Napoleon's stature? Yes. Mm-hmm. She's like, oh, it needs to be very, 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 very short. Mm-hmm. And opinionated. And perhaps have a bum hand. That's what Napoleon is known for, right? His big opinions. In a small frame. Uh, Tori has played this song a total of 62 times plus one. And do you want to know why I call it plus one and not just a total of 63? She got you know? a guest? No. She's played it 62 times plus one because up to now in the catalog, and maybe it'll change as we get further, I don't know. But up to now, this is the first time we've encountered a song that has lyrics that she's done a performance of completely instrumental. Huh. So it was 62 Josephines, but then there's also this one special Josephine that was simply instrumental as like an intro to something else. But because Josephine is so short, it's basically the whole song, you know, as the instrumental. Why did she do that? I'm very intrigued. And oh my, the soup's delicious, isn't it? And there's theories. There's theories, but I'll debunk the ones that I think need debunking. <laughs> And keep the ones you think don't need debunking. You hear me? I'll undebunk the debunked ones that I didn't think needed to be debunked. Mm. And I'll debunk the ones that haven't been bunked yet. Must be nice to hope for the thing you wish to want. You think you know. You don't know. You don't know. I know. You don't know. Uh, So anyway, in 1999, Tori must perform this song a total of two times on the tour proper and one time in promo. And it was, I think, the last song to get debuted from Tavina Simbach. Except Daytura. Oh, yeah. Well, except for Daytura. That's a good point. You got me there. Inexplicable, because this is such a straight-ahead arrangement. They probably could have pulled this off no problem. Why do you think it took so long? Yes, exactly. And it could have been done solo so easily, too. Mm -hmm. So, like, it didn't really need time with the band. It could have been done instrumental and solo. It tells me one of two things. Exactly one of two opposites. Either she really, really feels connected to it and is shy about performing it or, like, doesn't want to perform it because it's so important to her. Or two, she doesn't feel connected to it Mm -hmm. and doesn't, yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. One of the two for sure. You know, if we would have asked her, she would have been like, Josephine's having a margarita, baby. I asked her if she wanted to come out and she said, not tonight. She said, non, sorry. Oh my God, your French is shaping up. Thank you. Non, sorry. Non, sorry. (laughs) October 10th, 1999, in Salt Lake City, she debuted Josephine. And to my surprise, I assumed it would be debuted solo for some reason. But it was debuted with the band and the drums. Roll that, Oliver.
was the only time on the Dallas and Back tour that she did it, and the only time the whole year that she did it with the band. She performed it the very next time was on October 13th, three days later, as part of Musique Plus Artist of the Month in Montreal, and that's October 13th, 1999, she did it solo. Roll that. Not on tv did you see that i did not i heard it you didn't see it no what do you have against watching tori i prefer to listen to her with my eyes closed and sway oh yeah i can see you doing that just feeling yourself Mm -hmm. i've been thrown out for that yes i was there you're the one who called security actually because i wanted that seat yeah 1999 in the solo tour she did it on november 28th which is actually two days from now oh my god anniversary at the time of of this recording this recording date yeah 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 at the Virgin Megastore in Orange, and it was the last song of that little set. Roll it! From here you're haunting me By the sign Oh, so beautiful Only not To feel views Impossible she even gives Valerie a shout out. Hey Valerie, how have you been? I just saw you. Are things good? Good. Hey Val. Valerie loves me. That's Val Patterson, friend of the show. Friend to us all. Strange. So freaking strange. She did Josephine 12 times this tour, and it was frequently, not always, but frequently, which is more than often, but less than always, mm-hmm. frequently performed with ATN, or at least in the same set of ATN, if not back-to-back, which it was often performed back-to-back with ATN, but frequently performed with ATN in the set. Get it? Get it, which is a theme that we'll see throughout the life of this song, always. We're going to see these two paired up often, and that tells me right away that Josephine and ATN are a couple, or stand-ins, if you will, for Dare I Be So Bold, for Tori Amos and Mark themselves. What do you think? I guess. I call that a tenuous French connection, but a French connection nonetheless. Do you French kiss, David? No. <laughs> Ew. Mouth closed. I prefer little grandma pecks. And never on the lips. <laughs> She debuted the song for the 2001 tour on October 7th in Washington, D.C., and here we go. She messes up because she can't read the words that are on the floor. This is pre-glasses on stage. Okay. 
What size font do you think she used? I know, right? She's like, I can't read them. I I have I have some reparations I need to make, David. Finally. I have to apologize to you and to our listeners for yeah, I do have to apologize. <laughs> I'm standing by, deciding if I will accept or not, because I don't know what you're apologizing for. Well, earlier in this very program, I said that I didn't think she was saying sauceable, because, like, what does sauceable mean? However, you were insistent that she was. And I said, no, I thought that she was vocalizing, because sometimes she would say possible, possible, like, it wasn't always sauceable. Yeah, yeah. And it sometimes is impossible, possible. Like it was clear to me that it was sometimes possible. It was different things all throughout the years. Well, having now, now having come out on the other side of listening to all of the surviving Josephine performances, all of them, it took me like 15 minutes, honestly. They're so short. Having listened to all of them nine times out of 10 or 60 times out of 62, she says sauceable very clearly. So I have to now agree with you that it's a choice obviously she's saying sauceable clearly so now let's discuss what sauceable means in the context of this song if you don't mind all right you said earlier that trancing the sauce without the blame like that it was a shout out back to that right i think it's possible maybe even sauceable <laughs> but what does sauceable mean to answer that i feel like i'd have to hearken back to yet another conversation where we dissect what it means to trance the sauce oh not because you feel something or don't feel something these are all different songs I know, but... But because mass so big. Mass so big. Your mass is big? Your mass is so big. So big. My God. Wait, honestly, though, this is how I marry the word sauceable, which does not exist in the language, in the <laughs> vernacular. Although I did Google it. Let's start basic. How would you spell sauceable? With an I or with an A? Sauceable or sauceable? Sauceable. So S A B. Sorry, I answered that <laughs> with that. I was just picturing how I was spelling it as if you would be able to see it too. S A U C A B L E. Yes. So no E. S A U C able. Because if you type that out, it looks like sockable. Mm hmm. Nothing is impossible. The word itself says, I'm possible and sauceable. So sauceable in the Urban Dictionary, I did find with an E means, this is way after, but an image or video that can be easily turned into a meme, especially with anime. That picture could be funny. It's a very sauceable image, John. Let's edit it. That's what sauceable means. Did Tori invent the meme like she invented burning CDs? We all know that the meme came from a dent in Tori's ass. Mm. We all know that. The great meme there. I think sauceable in this context means if she's saying it's impossible, if something is impossible, only not to be of use, impossible. Like the feeling, right? Like it must, like it's just a terrible feeling. But to be of use, the opposite of impossible is sauceable. Like if we got drunk enough or like you can finesse it enough, it feels like that's what sauceable means. 
What do you think? I also found another entry for the word sauceability on a recipe page from like an Italian pasta. And it said sauceability, how readily sauce adheres to the shape. So sauceability is like a, a cooking thing. How readily sauce adheres to the shape. So how readily your sauce that you're trancing adheres to my body. For some reason, I'm also reminded of when Tori talked about Agent Orange, and I pulled it up so that I could get it right. And she says, again, as if we all know exactly what she's talking about, it makes perfect sense. It's the idea of becoming Tang, transmuting the chemical effect. For some reason, sauceable made me think of like transmuting something negative into something positive, or at least something more innocuous. So I don't know there's anything like that happening here but i think there is i love that transmuting something negative into something positive with the power of the sauce which is whatever the sauce is if it's the alcohol yes i love it along with the term sauceability which is like a delicious term in your mouth you know sauceable mm, i don't know if that's true or not but i guess it's a sauceability well all of that was to say that on october 10th 2001 in new york city tori did not say sauceable she said fossible like Fosse? Like Bob Fosse? She did that in New York in honor of Bob Fosse. You know Fossible. she absolutely do it. It's Fosse-ball. And she did a little Fosse neck. Oh my God. We do have video because this song was the song immediately following the Mr. Zebra foible. When she's like, no, no, wait. Then she went into Josephine. This one. Fosse-ball. I used to have a girlfriend known as Beanie with whom I lost four sunsets. In the Sorry. Anyway. On November 19th in Phoenix, she did this wonderful song with an improv intro. Roll it. For the very first time, she took her little number to Perry on November 27th, 2001, and she performed it with This Old Man, which I think was representing Mark. 
I think it's again. I think she's Josephine, and I think ACN is Mark or whoever she pairs it up with. The, the male. There's, she's doing like a male female thing, and I had to search for this song. I had to contact Lisa Ridlon to get this track right here because my version on the bootleg was all messed up. That is a resource you don't want to exploit. You don't want to squander it. You know it's important when you go to Lisa Ridlon. Exactly. You know it's important because it's the only time she did it with this old man ever. So here we go, Paris. December 5th in Glasgow, she did this song with ATN, and here's the proof is in the pudding because she says there's like a whole her side of things improv. So here, roll that, Oliver. Um, I was promised pudding.
So this is clearly her side of things. Josephine is her side of things. And his side of things is Etienne. Hmm. Whimsical. Must be fun to be married. I can't wait until you tell me if that's true or not. Oh, I can't wait. Uh, or you. Should we have a double wedding? Maybe we should. And should your slash our bachelorette party be French themed, like in Bridesmaids? Yes. Yes, it should be. I think so. Chocolate fountain for sure. Dairy-free chocolate. Mm, okay, two fountains. Mm-hmm. Marked hers and hers. That was Scarlet walking through the Tuileries. She was decidedly slower. Mm. Scarlet strolling. In 2002-2003 on Scarlet's Walk, Tori performed this song eight times, four times solo and four times with the band. I like an even split. And then she would go on to perform it three more times on the Lotta Pianos tour, all with the band. So here is November 27th in Chicago, solo. This is December 13th in La Jolla, and the drums return for the first time since 99. Mm. This is February 22nd in Birmingham, Alabama, and she did a nice improv. This song is always good for a, an improv in the mm. beginning. From here to Birmingham, I got an improv. On the original Sensuality Tour, prior to the hot-ass Summer of Sin, Tori performed this song five times, plus 
one. And it's important to me that you hear this one. This is Orlando, Florida, the instrumental version, April 3rd, 2005. pulled this from the dent. It said, according to Tori's written set list, she was supposed to perform Josephine before Jackie's strength, but must have decided to cut it for some reason, perhaps because she was running short on time. I guess she came out late that night and she was running short on time, but this is probably not the song. Like it clocked in at like a minute and a half when the original song itself was two minutes and a half. So she didn't really say she saved but a minute. So she didn't really cut it. She just performed a brief instrumental interlude. She, yeah, it was like an instrumental interlude intro to Jackie. Okay, it's like a Janet Jackson show. Yeah, Janet Jackie show. Janet Jackie. Mommy, kiss me goodbye. Mommy, why is Moscow burning? Mommy, why is that French lady haunting me? <laughs> Mommy, wherein lies an army strength? Mommy, what does denouement mean? <laughs> it means the falling action. Everything that happens after the climax before the resolution, little girl. Mommy, why do French people make smoking look so cool? Oh, they do, don't they? Yeah. And they just sit all day at cafes. So when we're going on this next tour, obviously there's a great deal of it spent in France. I've been warned. Like, that's all people do. Like, you don't drink coffee to go. You sit and you have a coffee. I'm like, what about an iced coffee? Because I don't drink coffee. I drink iced coffee because I'm gay and I'm American. I'm gay-American. Iced coffee's not really a thing there, turns out. Why is drinking iced coffee gay? Is it the iced coffee itself or is it the way you, like, wrap your lips around the cup? I don't know. I just had a sip right now. <laughs> I was so into it. I don't know why drinking iced coffee is gay, but it's, like, got to do with the, like, jiggle of the ice and the little straw. Let's get to the bottom of this. Either put me on FaceTime or do it in front of a mirror. Recreate the Tavinas and back cover, only drink coffee. Why do you want to watch me drink coffee, you perv? <laughs> That's my thing. Well, to help you understand, I googled, why do gay guys drink iced coffee? <laughs> And there's two, there's many. I got 1,740,000 hits, but the first one was, why is iced coffee so gay? And then the next one is, how iced coffee became a symbol of queer culture. So let's look at that one. 
this may end up on the cutting room floor. I guarantee it. No, you can't guarantee anything. Not on a short episode such as this. One of the earliest examples of the gay community's deep relationship with iced coffee comes from a 2001 episode of Will and Grace. In season three, episode 11, Jack, played by Sean Hayes, becomes besotted with a barista who keeps giving him free drinks, ultimately getting him hyped up on sugary caffeinated beverages. Jack's crush ultimately is fruitless, and Karen has to help him get over it. Hijinks ensue. That's why. For Sam, iced versus hot coffee is the perfect symbolism between queer and straight culture. Essentially, iced coffee has become a queer avatar and a way for gay people to signpost themselves against the uniformity of heterosexuality. If you're straight, that might sound ridiculous, especially in an age of which, while things are far from universally perfect, gay people can live their lives with a fair amount of autonomy. But signposting queerness is a gay tradition that dates back to the 19th century. It's like cruising, but with coffee. Oh. And when you do the straw... (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. And why at Starbucks, when they ask for my name to put on the cup, I always say Judy Garland. Judy. 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 Got to get you back to Columbia, Judy. (laughs) Anyway. Since we wasted all that time talking about coffee, we can't listen to Josephine from the American Doll Posse Tour, but you can go right now to iTunes and download the West Palm Beach version, which she performed as Santa. Well, she performed it as Tori in a Santa set. They were always performed as Tori. She did it three times. West Palm Beach, San Antonio, and Oakland always performed as Tori. And in the Santa shows, an Isabel show, and a Clyde show. So there was no uniformity there mm-hmm. at all. I love that. I love when there's no uniformity. Yeah, when you can't make any connection whatsoever. And when you see somebody that is attractive to you, you're sinning. You're just sinning. In the 2009 tour, the Sinful Attraction tour, she did it five times, all of them with the drums. And this is the last time she performed it with Matt Chamberlain in Paris on October 3rd. Gorgeous intro. That's cute that the last time it was performed with the band with Matt was in Paris. on the Sinful Attraction solo tour. She performed this one time, and it was December 2nd in London at the Jazz Cafe. She paired it with Ophelia, which I think says something very different than pairing it with ATN. And it's not the only time she would pair it with Ophelia. She would continue to pair it with Ophelia throughout Night of Hunters at least one or two other times. And I think that pairing is so interesting. I listened to them back-to-back, Ophelia into Josephine, and it makes Josephine much more sad. There's something, there's like a, I don't know why. So here it is, December 2nd, roll it, Oliver.
I have to get comfortable that there are just some things I will never know about being a woman in marriage. I would like to know the female married experience, but that's not something I have access to. Personally. <laughs> in 2010, she performed this song on September 3rd. That's where we got from Russia with Love, which we heard earlier. But then on the Night of Hunters tour, she performed it five times. And I'm going to play this one because I know you were there. And so was I. And it was the one that sticks out in my mind as like a really good performance. This was December 17th in Los Angeles. And again, she paired it with Ophelia. changes marriage changes jerry 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 jojo jojo in 2014 on the unrepentant geraldine's tour she played it five times this is the one i've selected it's november 21st in brisbane and she played it for someone who wasn't at the sydney show where she played it like the time before and it was so sweet someone didn't show up to that show and she was like okay and she played it again and it resulted in a cute little improv here we go of Somebody came up to me today and said, um, I was at one of the Sydney shows and naturally you played my favorite song on the show. I wasn't. And that seems to happen a lot. So I'm trying to correct Have the toy takes attendance at her shows. I wish she would do it more often. Mm -hmm. The Native Invader Tour. On the Native Invader Tour in 2017, Tori Amos performed this song seven times. And this is the first time 
in Dublin, September 7th. And I'm playing this because she introduces synth into the song in a really unique way. A few days later, on September 11th in Paris, she did it again, and I love what she does with the synth here. It is really, it's subtle. It's subtle, but effective.
On the Ocean to Ocean Tour Part 1, the 2022 Ocean to Ocean Tour, I don't know how we're going to refer to it in the future, but the 2022 installment of the Ocean to Ocean Tour, she did it five times, and this is where that lush lighting that's inspired the lounge lighting, that's where it came in. It was like a French flag come to life on stage. Here is March 11th in London, the very first night of the tour, and actually, there's a great video on YouTube. First of all, this guy got super, he was like, He's pretty far back, you can tell from the camera, but he gets like a super zoom that looks amazing. And she looks amazing, and it's such a good version. Finally, the last time she's played it to date was May 19th in Toronto on the Ocean Ocean Tour. Ask me if I was there. Were you there? I had COVID. Oh, no. Which I realize does not answer your question. So, no, I was not there. Yeah, good point.
What do you think, David? 62 and a half times? 62 plus 1.375. I don't even know if I call it a half because it's also instrumental. Well, you know what? We'll have to agree to disagree. Or disagree to disagree. <laughs> I picked that one. I'm not agreeing to anything. How do you feel about Josephine now that I've taken you on a tour of France? The Tuileries. I feel like I understand her a little bit better. I feel like if she spoke to me in French, I could probably like get most of what she was saying, but I couldn't speak it back. Yeah, that's how I feel. Yeah. Like maybe I could order in a restaurant, but that's about it. Who do you think is the modern incarnate of Josephine? Oh my gosh. I was about to say good question, but is it? <laughs> <laughs> wow. Wow. Sorry. <laughs> so rude. Get it's out of my just, lounge. It's Get just out. so niche. Who is the modern incarnation of Josephine? Nicole Kidman? Too late. No. <laughs> I've kicked you out. And you know what? I'm sorry. The elevator. Unfortunately, the elevator is out of service. You're going to oh, have to take the stairs. Mm, and also this building is condemned. And no one's ever coming back. Goodbye. Good night. Bye, David. We hope you've enjoyed your visit to the AMOS Live Lounge. Goodbye. The homecoming remix of Suede. You can find this on our remix archive at songsoftoryamus.com. Well, we did it, David. Yep, we sure did. We've traveled the world through space intergalactically. Now we're back down to Earth and gone to France. Already? We Yes. Next week, we go to homosexuality town. Okay, well, I'm going to ask you something, and don't say Venus. Which planet is the France of the cosmos? Oh, that's a good question. Neptune, actually. I would say Neptune. Perfect. Straw, straw, straw. <laughs> yeah, I love when you plunge your straw seductively and make that noise. Yeah, let's not do it. Let's not. No, let's not go any further. What? I thought you were going to say something gross. No. Can you please insert like the squeaky noise of the straw? That's <laughs> really no, funny. Why? I'm just going to do it live. <laughs> it's too much post-production. You think that I have all this time. Mm. I have a life, David. I have. I have a life. Woo-hoo. That was a little witness. I have other interests like never shut up, like tour all night. <laughs> <laughs> like our Instagram at Songs of Tori Amos, like our Twitter at Songs of Tori Amos, like our Facebook at Songs of Tori Amos, like our email Songs of Tori Amos at gmail.com, and like our Patreon, patreon.com slash Songs of Tori Amos. I do have other interests. It's both exhaustive and exhausting. Yes. If you like what we do, head over to patreon.com slash Songs of Tori Amos, where you can become a supporter today. There's a ton of audio content at a ton of different levels, so you can find something that suits your wants, suits your needs, suits your desires. Impossible. Sossible. Well, that was fun, David. I liked it. We're a good time. Satan French. People would be lucky to hang out with us. <laughs> hang out with us. Call us. Call our voicemail, 323-296-9955. Let us sit with you. Leave us a holiday message. Send us cheer. Invite us over. I got nothing to do on Christmas. That's not true. I actually have some very exciting plans on Christmas, but that's neither here nor there. Whatever. I think it is. No, it's here and there. Mm. And everywhere. And everywhere. <laughs> Any final words? Any final words in French? Fin. What? Fin. F-I-N. Oh, fin. 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 Are you nervous about our next episode? Uh. Here we stepped in the very 
thick high heels of a French lady. Now we have to step into the very slim high heels of a gay man. I thought you were going to say the light loafers. No, that's offensive. You're just itching to be offended today. And me without my calamine lotion. Maybe I can scratch that itch. All right. Goodbye. Bye. Au revoir, mon ami. Simone. Drive All Night is a production of the Sideways Society. For more information and links to things mentioned in this episode, please visit us online at songsoftoriamis.com. Wiggle, wiggle, wiggle.